A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through the end of Mistborn, the Hero of Ages, the end of Era 1, and our Era 1 coverage for the most part. I mean, we've got two two more little episodes, a guest episode, and a thing, but this is the last chapter episode, so finish the book! Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I'm drunk on book right now. <laughs> book drunk? <laughs> book drunk, but not alcohol drunk because it's July yet. <laughs> it's not July when you hear this, but we've still got a couple days of July for us here in the past. And we decided to stick to it um, just to round out the episodes. And we figured it, I I thought it would be a better idea because then we could come at that last episode as like an intoxicating mess mm-hmm. to talk about the Hero of Ages because it's just going to be you and I, which will be a different spin on that one. Uh, yeah. But we've got so many predictions to pay off and so much, so many other things to talk about with the whole series that I kind of wanted it this one to just be us. So. And I think it makes sense to have, since we have such a backlog of predictions, I think it'll make sense to do that in a wrap-up episode where we're covering the entire book. Because then then we can start talking about them more and And the implications of them. Yeah, exactly. And it wraps up into the entire series as well. So it's kind of like there's there's a couple of different things. Mm -hmm. So, Have you made um, a count yet? Of no, I haven't gone through and formally um, <laughs> deducted or like, you know, done that. I figure I'll probably do that at some point this week. So, okay. I guess um, I can help because I know also everything in this series. So today <laughs> okay, is our dangle. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can. Uh, today is our 11th and final episode discussing the Hero of Ages by Brandon Sanderson. And we are going to chat about chapters 76 through the end. But before we do that. Generally, we talk about what we're drinking. We're recording this on an afternoon. I don't think either of us came armed with mocktails. I guess it is a morning. Yeah, you're right. It is morning still. It's 9 a.m. Um, for me. That's fair. It's 10-ish for me. So, yeah. So, I've got water. Big old vase glass of water again. Me too. And I've got the remnants of my coffee. It's about a third a cup of coffee. It's a very good single origin blend from Counterculture that I ordered that I'm really enjoying. Citrus and like savory. I highly recommend people trying other coffees. Like if you haven't, go buy like a weird bag from a local place and just give it a go. Give it give it a try. Mm-hmm. Give something different a try than your usual, your typical, because I think you can find some really interesting things out there without trying too hard. Yeah. I think you and I have very different tastes in coffee. We do use the wrong taste in coffee. I do not like acidity in my coffee at all. It's because you've had bad acidic acidic coffee. No, I've had good acidic coffee. I've had coffee that you've made for me that you've raved about. Even me. Okay. I am in the craft of making coffee. I am still like mediocre at best because like I didn't have a lot of temperature control. I don't do all of the right exposure shit. I don't have the like technical equipment to rip like really good and interesting shots of like nine bar espresso. So I would say 
what you should what I what I would recommend to a lot of people of whom maybe want more or like I think that this is even a fun date idea. Go to a coffee roaster tasting. They have them everywhere. Basically, all you do is you end up tasting a bunch of different coffees and they run you through their different flavor profiles. And it is a lesson that is unparalleled in terms of figuring out what exactly you like in coffee. And you might not you you don't like the citrusy notes that I like in coffee. That's fine. There are lots of other spectrum. I think a lot of people get lost in this idea of just dark roast versus light roast and and medium roast or whatever. And that's not how coffee really works at all. But it is the it's it's very much like the this is a YA book. This is an adult book. Like <laughs> it's it's a stupid fucking marketing term that's used to overwhelmingly put thing in, put thing into group so that human can make mm-hmm. choice about thing even though that's a bad way of making a choice. Right. Like so. politics. <laughs> yes. So I guess that's that's my little drink thing. What I would say is, A, like, you can find these places everywhere. You could go to Minneapolis and St. Paul. There mm-hmm. are roasters there that do tastings. I highly recommend it. I think we've got um, a new one in St. Cloud, actually, that I haven't been to yet. Oh. A roaster? Like a coffee roaster? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Kinder? Yeah. Kinder? Something no like idea. that. But that's cool. They probably do tastings. So I'd be shocked if they didn't, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But that tends to be the best way. I went to a counterculture tasting and. Oh, my God, I went to like five or six tastings when I worked for coffee company and love counterculture stuff. They're from North Carolina. It's what I use my subscription. They make great stuff, but I switch it up. And so I try to add in other flavors and try other varietals of coffee as much as possible. And uh, the single origin is really great. It is simultaneously light and citrusy as well as savory. So it's got like some sour, but then like almost some like meaty, earthy tones, which is really interesting. Nice. Sounds it's a weird descriptor, but you know the way that like blood tastes in a steak? Yeah. Kind of similar. Doesn't actually taste like that. That irony, not the rest of it, if that makes sense. It's got like it's got some thickness to it. I mean, obviously, it's just fucking water, but it's got like some, I don't know. I know what you mean. Yeah. That quality. Yeah. That happens with beer, too. Mm-hmm. So I really dig it. God, it's so good. It's such a it's such an interesting blend. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Sweet. Cool. I guess that's enough drink talk because we're having water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're going to get to talk about this a lot over the course of the week and next week's episode. But I guess we're at the end of a series we've wrapped up our second series i should say on the show what do you think about this week's reading what do you think about the series render judgment unto caesar as you would oh man i want to reserve like the series as a whole until this question for next week well right um, right right quick thoughts but this this section man i love rules you know i love rules everybody listening to this knows i love rules and i got so much like all these puzzle pieces clicking together. Finally rules rules. Awesome. Loved it. I felt like there was some interesting choices when it came to like resolutions for some characters, but at the same time I loved the epilogue (laughs) and the way that spook kind of becomes the central character to the, the world. Yeah. I I'm having trouble finding a specific word to attribute to this but i feel overall content and happy with the ending of this book 
Cool. I'm yeah. I'm very excited. I I know that I had came down. Um, we had had a conversation. We're recording this on a Friday. We had had a conversation on Monday when you had finished reading the the book before we recorded and talked about the bear for pj symposium and i came down really hard on on this book and we'll definitely talk more about that in next week's episode but i do want to say that in actually compiling these notes i have softened (laughs) a little bit more we'll talk more about my sort of grand opinion of this series i think in the hero of ages wrap-up but I did I did definitely soften when I was doing the notes here because I think I don't know I don't know what it was about that day or maybe having finished it and then talking to you about it but I I came off very aggressive overly negative as I'd had some other compounding feelings about the a, a number of different things relating to the the series or otherwise so I just wanted to say not that anyone here has heard my my thoughts or opinions, but I think even in the lead up to it, I was feeling this build of like anxiety and resentment and a little bit of dread because this book at times is weaker and at times is much stronger than the previous entries for very different reasons. And I don't think when I initially addressed that I was giving it quite enough due, but I'm excited to talk about what that means more next week yeah that makes sense and you seemed pretty clear in that conversation that you specifically had these feelings about like your third read through of the book yes which i do i do have yeah we'll we'll talk we'll talk more about that but specifically i think okay the hot drop to get you to check out next week's episode i think this series for the most part is not one that rewards rereads as much as i would like Versus other series, I feel like there's so much that is factually established that you can get it get a lot out of a second read through. But because of the way that it's composed and written personally, I didn't get that much out of this third read through. I did catch a lot of different details and some some fun things that I hadn't noticed before. But was it all a fun ride? I don't know. We'll talk about more next week. Magic is gone a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think. And it could just be the proximity of those reads, too. It hasn't had enough time to grow fond. I mean, the first time that I had read this series was last summer. And so it's not it's not as though I've lived a long way away from the story and then came back and revisited it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's it's more like a, a fresh retread, which inadvertently is another reason that I am kind of glad that we are going to be separating Stormlight a little bit so that it will kind of be like a fresh retread, you know, a, a year plus down the line from when I started and read the series. So gotcha. I think overall, yeah, yeah, I'm excited. But that said, we'll talk more about that next week. That <laughs> My thoughts about this week reading, this is as good of an ending as you could ever want from all of the setup that this book does, that the story does, and it is a fantastic conclusion, I think, to what the story was trying to get us to think about and feel, the themes mm-hmm. therein. So, yeah. I'm just realizing now that those rules that I was talking about before, a lot of them really came together last section. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There were still some, though. Well, there were still some rules or clarifications on things, mostly through the logbook, that communicate a lot of those ideas and solidify them in ways that we had predicted or that you had predicted or had conjecture about. So I think that's one of the interesting things is that at a certain point, when you start to understand 
the rule system behind Mistborn, you start to be able to make your own assumptions about how things work as you go down kind of the line of episodes and thinking and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Episodes. I meant chapters. <laughs> but yeah. Cool. With that, let's get into the episode on the whole here. We've got our breakdown. We start with chapter 76. And, you know, I know I spent a lot of time last week talking about, like, why I ended up extending the episode to where it was. And it's because this intro I knew from the very beginning of doing this series is where I wanted this final episode to open. Because I think it is such a fantastically strong moment of writing and something that's very simple it's very aloof there's this immediate sense of detachment as though she's floating in this dream remembering past events it's the only thing that she could possibly imagine encompassing this sort of expansion of thought and the way that she feels so distant from the ground that she was previously walking on you know all of these various memories and moments are flitting through her mind as she transcends truly into godhood and it is a perfect opening to a chapter and a climax and i just couldn't help myself i knew that this is where this was going to begin to end yeah i get it i totally get it (laughs) i would have done the same thing if i was in your shoes i love in this opening that she's confused not only about where she is but when she is i thought that was it, it was a really good way to establish that like her mind has completely sort of opened up and changed a little bit. And she's able to remember all these things so clearly and vividly that she might even be there in her, in her head at the moment. I thought this was a good sort of use of your part, like on your part, the sort of way you broke down this chapter on top of just everything that's going on. The fact that this sort of subvert, subverts my expectations of who the author is right away at the beginning of me reading this section on top of the cool perspective. So very well chosen. Yeah, I think that's another part of it, too. Obviously, right now we know we know how the book ends. We know where everything goes. We know that says it's actually the hero of ages. But this sort of detachment immediately to start it is like, oh, whoa, was I wrong? Because you do have this assumption. I think you get it kind of in the middle of the book. I got it very similarly to where you got it, where it's like, oh, Sazed is the hero of ages. We don't really know what the fuck that means or to what extent, you know, that really that line is drawn. And this is a moment where it's like, oh, shit, was I wrong this whole time? Like he really (laughs) hasn't been using like any sort of gendered pronouns intentionally uh, for talking about himself. He is ignored using Vin's name in text as often as possible. He does refer to Vin at one point as she in the last week's reading talking specifically about her, but just vaguely enough that you think it could be like third person dissociative, like because she's so removed that it, it feels like it's all tangible. And I tried my hardest to reinforce that and trying not to also like dissuade you from your thoughts because I wasn't, I'm not, I'm not here to gaslight you into believing something <laughs> different. I'm instead here just to make sure that you're, you're maybe continuing to question things or yeah. pointing to details that are intended to make you question things. So yeah, I, I love, love, cannot, cannot overstate the power of this opening. Mm-hmm. And just like that dream state that we're talking about where she doesn't know when, where, why, how she is, she continues to wake up. And it really begins to not only paint this lens of understanding for what Vin faces waking up into godhood, but Rashik faced when he picked up the power to begin with. To immediately be confronted with this dark cloud and just this incredible power 
to wipe away the ash from the sky, to plug the ash mounts, to immolate the earth almost immediately on accident because of these decisions just shows how truly dangerous a reactionary god could be in those moments and the delicate balance of all of these powers. I, I love the little line, like a maid wiping soot from a d dirty window, as though it's just so easy that it's it's as simple as a hand wave. Yeah, we can assume that this is what Rashik felt like based on the way the logbooks have described the actions. I don't think they're quite on level grounds, though, with their opportunities. Rashik was given this this very fleeting several moments to to make these changes. And while those couple minutes were paramount and he was able to change so much in that little bit of time, Vin's still kind of left with this lingering effect and she's truly kind of ascended to this godhood to the point where like as far as we can tell at this point kind of permanently inhabiting the position that pre preservation previously held and i guess that brings the question is she in this moment technically preservation i don't know if if that distinction is ever really made but Probably not, I guess. Maybe that's the sort of source of the splitting of the power that we talk about towards the end, at the end of this book. But yeah, yeah, that's kind of where my thought yeah, process goes. I I guess there, there are words. Oh, God. This is where this gets really difficult. This is also why the Cosmere is so fucking cool now that you've experienced it, right? So... Mm. There are explanations. That's kind of what this book teases at the end, right? Is mm -hmm. that there, there is something much larger. There are explanations that exist for a lot of these things. I think there are a couple of safe assumptions that I can give you that will explain things without spoiling anything else. Vin is very much holding the power of preservation. I don't know that she held it long enough to be labeled preservation, if that makes sense. She wasn't inhabiting the power for so long that it had changed like she was able to still push against some of the prerogatives of preservation because she was also constructed of ruin right so like that's the end of this right i don't i think also that we're a little bit that your assumption on rashik is close but a little bit off he is holding the power for fleeting moments but as we see here fight like everything's a fleeting moment to a god and we see so much time pass so quickly for vin like there's a lot of shit that's going on from our people's perspective on the ground but for vin i think that's why it's so important that it like intercuts so quickly to her all the time is to be like she just makes snap decisions constantly she doesn't have time to like sit around and watch she's kind of stuck in the same fleeting clock not to say that the power is draining from her. She's not losing the power in the same way that the Wells power is recoalescing. It's it's more close to compare if someone was able to hold all of the ATM in them at once, right? All of eight, all of the it's more close to compare the well of ascension, I should say, to the pile of ATM or all of the ATM that could have ever existed, because those are sort of the opposites intentionally, wherein the mists are more the dispersion of preservation's power versus ruin having coalesced it all into himself right does that make i know i'm kind of ranting a little bit here to try to yeah. connect all of these dots now that we're at the end i think it's tough to say that rashik was preservation right it's tough to say that vin was preservation i think they were holding the powers of preservation i think says it is set up to long term be preservation because he's holding complete versions of both powers well I he's mean, preservation in that, and ruin, in that that's respect different. yeah exactly 
Yeah, that's, so that's, he's we'll, we'll get there, but yeah. The hero of ages. Right. But do you understand what I mean? Like, that's that's kind of the distinction is like, I don't think, and it's, we never, we never approach this point. So it's very hard to kind of do anything but assume. I don't think you would call Vin preservation. You would say that she was holding that power. Okay. And she was yeah. intended to be a holder I, from, from the beginning, right? So she was imbued with even more preservation than usual so that she could manage. Mm-hmm. Right. Which we'll get to when we get to that logbook. So we don't need to we don't need to talk about it now. Obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about this power as we go through the week weeks readings. But there's there's a lot here, man. And that's just the beginning kind of of the problems that stem from her awakening as she starts to feel out this balance and see how she's being manipulated in those early moments to destroy through a lack of information. I mean, that's the biggest thing. We we've talked about Rashik's experience. It's it's the same thing here for Vin. And as such, Rune is kind of having a heyday with her kind of going through and creating an ocean wave that's going to wipe out a tidal city and stops her from intervening to save. And we really kind of see the push and pull of these forces. And Vin is acting, believing that she's going to be preserving and helping, but actually causing a ruin. And Rune could have stopped all this shit, but he's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're new to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of funny to see Ruin stop her at a certain point. I I don't want to get in like too much into semantics regarding like manipulation because I don't think he manipulated her into ruining things. I think he just kind of knew that it was a trap and let her fall into it, you know, letting her spin the world a little bit too fast and seeing those. Yeah. Those like dire reactions to her good intentioned motions. So it, it's only when she starts to pinpoint those reactions and like, say hey i did this it caused this let me stop that that those those stops happen Mm -hmm. he pushes back and i love this way of explaining how this world operates and how they're in this deadlock constantly between ruin and preservation but he did let her have that little that little minute that little second of Yeah, of of the chaotic destruction, the booba, as it were. <laughs> um, no, I I really like that as a uh, as a little rejoinder. And yeah, to your point, I didn't mean manipulation in the sense that he's he's like actually actively puppeting her or anything. But he is just kind of standing idly by and being like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just letting her basically fall to her own ignorance is is more the the sort of setup of Ruin in this moment. Also, apologies, uh, folks. I know that I say both Rune and Ruin, and I pronounce it three different ways. I can't control myself. It's how it fits into a sentence. Ruined. There is a beat in Stephen King's The Dark Tower in which a group of people are referred to as Ruined, and I think that Ruined, the way that I say Ruin, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's a that's a permanent change that I don't know if I'll ever get over. That is the most that you know about the Dark Tower as well. <laughs> that, there's a tower. Um, there's there's a tower. And apparently it's people are ruined. Probably okay, dark cool. in color. Yeah, maybe. Pro- probably. 
We also get some big drops about the creation of humanity here, that it was something that he'd seen before, that Ruin and Preservation had seen before, and it almost seems like he enjoyed this act of creation with Preservation too in this moment. Also, Ruin is very much just kind of running his mouth at this point. Vin isn't really saying anything. He's very much just like there talking and kind of having a good time. He did feel a bit odd about the gifts that Preservation had bestowed upon humanity as it would obviously create an imbalance in the long run, but there's something missing here that he's still trying to track down. We've known this. This has been his intent the whole time, and that's to actually find his body so that he can truly overcome this power imbalance between the group of them. Yeah. I. It is a big drop, as you as you say, about the, like, that we've seen something like this before, but I really didn't catch it. And I think there was just a lot going on and I was kind of caught up with it, but I didn't really catch that. I'm assuming at this point that that was Kelsier, like the first attempt. But what? Explain. Oh, creation of humanity. Understand. I was thinking creation yeah. of Vin. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Creation humanity. of humanity. Okay. That is a little bit wider scoped than <laughs> I was even prepared for. <laughs> um, so anyway, the I, I don't I don't know what to make of that. If that's another species of some sort, if there was another planet that they had inhabited and subsequently destroyed, or a series of them, maybe I don't know. But this this play by preservation to create an imbalance in, but but to kind of counteract it by hiding the atium and delay at least the uh, the snowball effect of the imbalance kind of kind of nice kind of sneaky very sneaky I, well and it, i think ruin's okay with it too that's the other thing because he's like well if you're putting some power into them there that's just going to make me more powerful in the end when i destroy them like i'm going to be able to overpower you and actually be able to execute on our contract so kudos he he kind of has that sort of reaction in this moment where it's like yeah, he knew he was he wasn't blindsided by the fact that the power of preservation was in humanity. Um, mm. His but. his state and his sort of disposition mm-hmm. during this section of this book seems so starkly different than it was just before Vin ascended. What do you Would mean? You agree with that? He was so driven and so angry about like finding this ATM stash. And I guess, I guess at this point he's, he knows where it is mm-hmm. on the ground. So he's a little bit more calm, I guess maybe, but his, his interactions with Vin seem less emotionally charged than they well, were before. That's fair. I think he's also not trying to emotionally manipulate her to make the decisions anymore. So like he, is on top of that, like behaving differently because he's like, oh, you're on my level now. Well, now you see things the way that I see things. So I don't need to like push you. This is kind of that idea that you were mentioning. You're like manipulated feels a little bit too strong before he was manipulating before he was puppet mastering. Now he's like, cool. All right, you're here. I'm going (laughs) to I'm going to go on a couple of villain monologues and just real quickly make sure that you're caught up to speed on everything that's going on in the world. Stop you Uh, from blocking a fucking tsunami, mm -hmm. which is going to destroy some group of people that we don't know about. Yeah, some coastal Um, town somewhere. (laughs) It's having a bad time. Atlantis, I think, is what it's called. Well, now. Yeah. 
there's mm-hmm. there's a pretty good final note here too that I want to bring up regarding the this section and it kind of gets into this idea even as we're talking about like the tidal wave and everything else. I really enjoy the idea of ruin and preservation and you know ruin and vin in this case kind of controlling these armies that they can't really touch or help in any serious way and it feels like a 4x game like civilization running with like just computers playing but you, you're like watching and you're like oh shit if i would have picked that or if i would have done this it would have all came out differently why didn't i put gandhi in the game gandhi would have gone for like a peaceful route blah 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 it just has this like very detached scope where you wish you could go back a couple of turns ago and like reload your save and like go back in and like make these changes but you can't because vin never had the ability to set up the the chessboard to begin with she has to play the hand that she's dealt yeah but uh she doesn't have very much but she does have ellen now i want to play civ <laughs> um actually what i want to play is crusader kings oh yeah fair crusader yeah, kings wanna... kind of does play that way now you yeah. say that because you can't yeah. you can kind of influence things but you don't really you can't be like marry them i mean yeah, you can get pretty close. You can get kind of close to it. <laughs> yeah, you can almost force the hand, but you can't quite. You can but. force the initial hand pretty firmly because it's your king, and then after mm-hmm. that, it's like, why did my fucking offspring do that? <laughs> God, but. I love four X games. Mm-hmm. So, Kalen's working all weekend. I think I might have a date with with my graphics card. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. (laughs) That was a great joke. (laughs) Cool. That's fun. It'll be it'll be a fun time. I have to get to seventy-seven. Cool. All right. Our logbook. We move on to chapter seventy-seven here. We've got our logbook. Looking back, we should have been able to see the connection between the mists, Alamancy, and the power at the Well of Ascension. Not only could Alamancer's visions pierce the mists, but there was the fact that the mists swirled slightly around the body of a person using any kind of Alamancy. More telling, perhaps, was the fact that when a hemolurgist used his abilities, it drove the mist away. The one, the closer one came to ruin, the more under his influence, and the longer one bore his spikes, the more the mists were repelled. Okay. I I don't think this fully... I guess it kind of does. I just need to think about it better. But how the this how the mist changed their like reaction to Vin. She's initially embraced by them, but then after the well, she's they start turning on her, being repelled by her, and I wasn't sure if that was simply because Ruin had more influence on Vin despite him having influence from the beginning, but the explanation of it like the amount of time the spikes embedded and the fact that she's more consistently wearing it starts to make more sense. Another thing to add into those layers is she wasn't burning tin while she was wearing the earring before. Like when she was growing up, she was almost never burning tin intentionally, right? So she wasn't really using hemolurgy ever, despite being infused with a hemolurgical spike. So it wasn't until she was given her mistborn capabilities, or well, not given, but she explored her mistborn capabilities with Kelsier that she started to burn tin. And so it's not until then that ruins that the hemorrhagic spike wouldn't do more than minor repelling. And she wasn't wearing the spike for the entirety of Mistborn. It was in and out of her ear variously over the course of, of time. But yeah. it was the only metal thing that she intentionally kept, obviously. And, and she regularly had it just in that little meager pile of her possessions. 
uh, mm-hmm. that she would sort of look at whatever it was. It was her earring and like, I can't, I can't even remember <sighs> earring a couple of things from Reen, some like dirt and sand from other places or rocks, mm-hmm. I think from other places. Rocks sounds um, right from where she had been. So, yeah, I, I personally feel like it's very well explained as to why. And the other thing being when she's fully exposed to preservation's power at the well, she not only unleashes runes or ruins, all of ruins bits have more influence over the world and are clearly pushing against things more firmly after the well of Ascension. But on top of that, she was soaked in preservation's power. And so is naturally when in, like spiked, it's like, I need to get further away from you because there's a conflict here internally because the power wants to be with more than any other individual in the planet. And because of that spike, it's reverse. Yeah. Reverse, 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 reverse. Yeah. So we move to Ellen standing among the rubble and he's almost, almost, he is kind of distraught at the destruction of such a powerful and notable landmark of his life in the, in the form of Kritik Shah crumbled to the ground. He really brings into question how this devastation could have occurred, and it seems only possible that it could have been a force outside of normal comprehension tying it to the power at the Well of Ascension. Oh, that He's right. Kind of. He's right yeah. for the, like, not in the way that he thought. It is a force that he's not, that's outside of normal comprehension, but that force is his wife. Right. I really... Love this. And I know that's something that Brandon's talked about quite a bit that he was he's upset with in post of this book is that it doesn't return to Luthadel enough because Luthadel is kind of a character in the other two books. Mm -hmm. And so he he's always he's said that in an adaptation, he would try to center more of the story around Luthadel as he could afford to to kind of make it. You know, a bigger a bigger deal in the long run for for an adaptation. Yeah, I think uh, we'll probably get to it soon, but I think that could have easily been done if we had Lord Penrod as a perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think his arc would have been a lot more satisfying as well, as opposed to just seeing it in brief glimpses from Ellen's perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do we get and from Sazed or Marsh? I think in this book, it's predominantly. Marsh, a little bit of Tensoon and kind of the impacts of what's going on with Penrod. But yeah, there's not a whole lot of, of Penrod in this book. We also get some mentions, of course, and some, you know, from scouts and, you know, messengers and whatnot running between. But yeah, this is always something that Brandon's highlighted. He's like, you know, art's never done, right? But if you if you have the opportunity to return to something and like adapt it, which it seems is very likely in the coming future that we will see one of the series adapted into film or TV. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that he said that he would want to change is to make more of this book focus around Luthadel. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I would have absolutely wanted that. <laughs> yeah. I still think, you know, I, I have no problem with it as written and it's good because we still get the coming home nature of like Vin returning and like fighting among Kritik Shaw. All of her big climaxes happen in Kritik Shaw, right? Like her mm-hmm. her first conflict, killing the Lord Ruler, the Well of Ascension, and then exploding Kritik Shaw. It's it's a very nice comeuppance arc for, you know, the city of Luthadel in its own right. So I I don't think he underplayed it, but it's underrepresented inside of this book. Mm-hmm. 
all the beats are there. It just needed more time, arguably. You bringing up Lord Ruler and her conflict with him at the end. The mists that now we know definitively are the power of preservation. Mm -hmm. And the entire point is to, like, the idea was to keep ruin in check throughout this whole thing. And the Lord Ruler was the tool in which that was happening. Mm -hmm. Why were the mists assisting Vin in killing the Lord Ruler? Well, the Lord Ruler was wearing hemallergic spikes, so he could never be touched by the mist. So it was hubris then. And Vin was given the capability to call upon the mists, was like selected by preservation, right? Like that's that's a big deal that's made inside of this section by Ruin and by Sazed through the logbook, is that Vin was very much like hand-selected at 16, no less. Just to further emphasize that little number there, that's when she mm -hmm. becomes a Mistborn is at age 16, so, I mean, she's chosen from birth, don't get me wrong, but she's she is 16 when she comes of age and everything starts to happen to her. Right. So. Special. Special. Yeah. So there's there's a lot there. We'll talk about all of these components as we kind of get to them as well. But it's it's tough not to. This is always the issue with the end of a book is it's always like, ah, it's so hard to not bring up all the other stuff that happened to like reconnect it and recontextualize the things so that the story in the end makes sense. But focusing on the text, there's another detail that I really love here, and that is Ellen looking up and seeing the stars blazing above. It really paints, again, how different this world is than ours, where we can just go out and peer up at the sky and millions of stars light years away are glimmering down at us. You begin to feel why something like uh, could be very attractive to worship those stars as a thousand eyes judging and staring down at you and watching your behavior and just sort of this the whole religion and math of the whole thing. It's I, I just really appreciate this a little bit. It's small, but I think it's a really big deal. It is. Absolutely. And I think... That it's more relatable than you're kind of leading on because anybody in a big city or even like a medium sized city can have this feeling maybe to a lesser extent, but just going out into the wilderness for me, my cabin growing up was my favorite place in the world specifically for this reason, because just laying out in the middle of nowhere, staring up at the sky, it was stunning. Oh, there is somebody like if you grew up and like lived your whole life in Seattle, you probably do feel like this. But, you know, I, I think I think this is just a more extreme version of that awe inspiring feeling of seeing stars with zero light pollution. Yeah, agreed. I think a little bit too intense that like this is so much more intense than even that is because the idea that the stars were even there is something that isn't presented. Yeah, because he's like when he when he looks up and sees the stars, he's really also fixated by the lava and everything burning to the ground, you know, kind of around him. So it's like it's a it's a very exciting sight. But at the same time, all of the world is very different. We go from the destruction of the Lord Ruler's palace of Critic Shaw past the glorious sky and into Keep Venture, the house that he grew up in. And it is certainly disturbingly empty, and the whole thing feels very off to Ellen, with almost everyone in the building being dead or missing entirely. And there's one notable man, of course, of whom killed himself and left a message for Ellen, that of Lord Penrod. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite have the impact as I wish I would have, and I think... Like I was mentioning before, seeing more of Penrod 
would have been really helpful, I think, both from the Luthadel standpoint and from just more more of kind of Ruin's influence. I think we would have been even better able to understand Quellian and his actions leading a different city if we had had Dell's perspective. So, yeah, yeah, I think this gets back to the point of like, that's how the focus could really shift in a, in a fun way would be if we could have not a fun way necessarily, but we would have more of an impact in this moment. It just, again, this book covers so much fucking ground that it's almost as though it doesn't give enough focus to any individual part except for a couple of side stories. Like everything is just moving. We we were talking about how in previous weeks, all these dominoes are getting set up and like how it seemed like nothing was happening. But in reality, he has to do that because he has to get us to this point. And yeah, it just leads yeah. to a very, it leads to where we are at this point. It does feel a little like dominoes, but dominoes with like a four-year-old coming in Come coming in like also just kind of wrecking stuff. That's totally fair. I that's that's a good analogy. I was imagining like a domino that was stretched to its limit so that it could crash into the next one. Like it's just going to touch it so that it hits. It's not going to cleanly connect to push the next domino. It's kind of the way that I feel like some of this goes. It's like mm, more on Penrod would have been awesome. More on Luthadel would have been really important, giving us more of a sense of some of the the danger in other not even other we were just talking about the danger of too many perspectives but slowing the story down a little bit i i know that trilogies are beautiful and we love the idea of of threes in humanity but sometimes you need to stretch a book into a fourth book and uh you know yeah to make everything feel right is that what happens with era two kind of or was that always intended to be yeah era two is kind of a different different boat this isn't really a spoiler the first book was intended to just be a one-off and then Brandon was having so much fucking fun with the characters that he wrote that he wrote a trilogy afterwards. So he like wrote mm-hmm. the one book and was like, OK, this is just going to be like a fun side novel before going into what he really wanted Era 2 to be, which is now Era 3. And then he was having so much uh, fun with the weird Era 2 story that he was like, fuck it. We're doing a whole thing here, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. But yeah, so he accidentally added four books onto his plan basically or three books onto his plan gotcha so yeah it's a single book and then a trilogy cool that's how to think about it anyway yeah i and i guess you i was i was using that obvious comparison to lightbringer right where it's like you have so many things set up that like do you sacrifice character at the altar of i i need to make things happen and the answer there i think more often than not should be no despite that sometimes being disappointing because you have to wait longer for something to happen. Yeah. Looking at you, Game of Thrones season eight. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Great example. But it is it is important to say that like Penrod's death is still kind of felt through Elland. It doesn't have the weight that I feel like it should, kind of like we were saying, but it is still a moment of sadness for Elland because this was his this was his like political victory in a big way that he was actually establishing the system that it was beginning to work and Penrod's death kind of signals the death of that idea for the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I think, think it's a much bigger defeat than it's lent <laughs> credence. Or it time is. To, but yeah, I think it probably hits Ellen a lot harder than it hits us. It's just mm-hmm. kind of a side effect of how crazy the story already is. 
Right. He's got to go. He's he's like Sonic. He's got to go. Got to go. Got to go. Run to the next thing, which Penrod does point him directly north towards the terrorist dominance. But obviously, at this point, Ellen's worked out all of Ruin's little tricks. And so he knows that it's wrong and gets a whisper uh, in his ear that directs him otherwise west towards the pits of Hatson. That whisper, of course, is Vin. I think specifically because we get this side by side perspective between Vin and Ellen, but we get this this perspective of Vin controlling the world and affecting the world on this macro level. So it's almost hard to comprehend that she can also control things on this micro level and get so granular and ruins able to manipulate these words so precisely and so specifically. I, I that incomprehension I guess is kind of the point, but it is very cool to see like both sides of their influence. It 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 is because it's it speaks to the ability for like preservation to interact a lot more directly and then for ruin to have to damage something in order to impart an impression, right? So like that difference is really nuanced between the two of them. The other thing that this really makes me think about a lot is that it really does a really good job of delineating the power of the person of whom was holding preservation before, of whom died and was communicating with Ellen by jumping up and down and waving hands around, versus Vin's ability to directly interact and the power that she really pulled in when she pulled in the mists that had been spread out everywhere because our original holder of preservation wasn't able to communicate that well or at all like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I wonder how much of that was always the case or if that was kind of a sacrifice made when giving up some power to imprison ruin like the ease of communication i don't know i think i think you're right with kind of the the latter is that he gave when he gave up his power he gave up the ability to interact directly like he created the mists at large and created and put a lot of his body into humanity in the form of preservation in general, which is another reason that he can probably more directly interact with people as he can talk through his little bit or that little bit of power that's stored in everyone. So I, I think that there are a number of different things that you can point to, to say like, Hey, this is clearly preservation functioning as intended, but that still makes the old preservation that we had previously seen a lot weaker and unable to communicate compared to Vin holding the power. And I wonder now, thinking about it even more, if that's an expenditure, like that ability to communicate that he's in his final pushes communicating with Ellen, even in a very sort of simplistic way as he's dying, is that little bit of communication expending the last bits of his life and like effectively causing his death? I think so. I, I think it it's accelerating it at the very least. Okay. You know, to that degree. In the way that he's, you know, using what's left of his power and he's seeing everything being destroyed around him and has done his best. But, you know, if we if we think about the way that like preservation and ruin butted up against each other, when Vin was holding that power, you can see how she would how ruin could have destroyed the person who was holding preservation because he didn't have all of that power. So Rune was likely just directly attacking him being like, ha okay, well buddy, I'm going to kill you now. And I, I really think that that's probably another thing that was going on in the background, right? Is that he was being directly attacked by Rune as well. And 
it's yeah textually known that preservation couldn't attack in general right could preserve himself you would assume if he had the power to do so but womp womp it's more like holding a shield so with that we go to chapter 78 these final episodes are always beefy boys, but this one's going to be particularly beefy, I'm feeling. So we've got our logbook here. Long one. There's a couple of long ones. There's a couple of short ones. But this one, this is one of those long ones. It may seem odd to those reading this that Atium was the part was part of the body of a god. However, it is necessary to understand that when we said body, we generally meant power. As my mind has expanded, I've come to realize that objects and energy are actually composed of the very same things and can change state from one to another. It makes perfect sense to me that the power of godhood would be manifest within the world in physical form. Ruin and preservation were not nebulous abstractions. They were integral parts of existence. In a way, every object that existed in the world was composed of their power. Atium, then, was an object that was one-sided. Instead of being composed of half ruin and half preservation, as, say, a rock would be, Atium was completely of ruin. The pits of Hathston were crafted by preservation as a place to hide the chunk of Ruin's body that he had stolen away during the betrayal and imprisonment. Kelsier didn't truly destroy this place by shattering those crystals, for they would have regrown eventually, in a few hundred years, and continued to deposit Atium as the place was a natural outlet for Ruin's trapped power. When people burned Atium then, they were drawing upon the power of Ruin, which is perhaps why Atium turned people into such efficient killing machines. They didn't use up this power, however, but simply made use of it. Once a nugget of Atium was expended, the power would return to the pits and begin to coalesce again, just as the power at the Well of Ascension would return there again after it had been used. Mm-hmm. So, I know it's it's well known and kind of established that Everything in this world is equally ruin and preservation. But I hadn't quite taken that to mean objects and the planet itself. I took it to mean like beings and animals and plants and stuff. But those don't really exist in this world at this point, do they? Correct. Isn't that, I mean, they do, right? Like plants do exist. Flowers don't because obviously the plants feed and dogs exist. Exist. exist dogs exist like there are some animals probably not to the i mean pervasive nature because obviously that's something that gets repopulated in the world when it says it takes the power right but i don't know i just hadn't put enough thought into it to like really break it down like oh that rock is half ruin and half preservation when you really boil it down so this kind of helped me refocus and reframe that to to really kind of understand what's happening here it yeah, it, it's it's very interesting that they're both like equally invested into each of these components in the world. Like they're they have an equal contribution into everything that they do. Right. Except for the one imbalance really being humanity. And, so, and that was an explicit deal that mm-hmm. they had to like you get to see why when Vin tries to do anything, Ruin can block her. And you, you can see that like they have to. They have to work together in order to do anything because one can just block the other from doing anything that they don't want. So it had to be an explicit like conversation and compromise and like in a, a like a plan. It had to be planned out. It couldn't just be done by preservation without, without Ruin's knowledge of it. I think that's another thing that makes this really interesting too is that 
the blocking runes ability to block preservation is ultimately leading to the culmination of the destruction of the world which is what was promised right like this is the balance that the end was always supposed to come to based on the agreement so like just by throwing his arms up and saying you can't do anything i can't really do that much and then kind of blocking each other's impacts on the world this is the culmination of the stone rolling downhill as it should yeah i kind of just imagine them at a certain point. They've just got like Adirondack chairs <laughs> chilling. <laughs> they're like, I don't know. I can't do anything. You can't do anything. One it's of those the guy throwing out the chair and they're both sitting there. <laughs> but it's two of them. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're bathtubs like those Viagra commercials. <laughs> just sitting there in their bathtubs watching the earth, watching the planet staring off as the planet explodes yeah mm-hmm. cool we move from the logbook over to the imprisonment of sazed in the Condra homeland in what he calls the strangest dungeon he'd ever been in and that certainly makes sense considering the goo that was normally kept there to well i i guess like it, it can't rot <laughs> i guess it would just like grow stale i don't i don't know <laughs> the Condra don't rot in the cells <laughs> I'm dry I'm out? imagining it like never drying out Play-Doh okay. in a in an open little container with grates on top. But <laughs> 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 I fruit up. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a good way of thinking about it. I just I like I like the imagery that he uses as he's talking about this this you know chamber that he's trapped in and he's like oh of course they wouldn't build something for humans humans have never been here before so it just makes sense but yeah. our boy has finally come to turn did you have something else to say there sorry well it's, it's essentially a bucket <laughs> yeah right a, a hole in the ground bucket <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah but our boy has finally come to terms with something serious from a religious standpoint the hero is real and he's feeling vindication and validation through his placing of faith for the first time in this novel he believes in it and it pulls something out of him where he can finally connect all the dots and to quote somehow drawing peace from chaos yeah i am struggling with this section like i i don't quite have the right way to describe how i'm feeling about it so i'm gonna just kind of word salad at you a little bit salad say salad salad Sazed's realization or this decision, I guess, to believe that the world is an ending and that the hero is real and that the terrorist faith is true. It feels like it's supposed to be that missing piece that was like what he was searching for all along. But it, it kind of feels forced in a way to me. He already believed that Vin was the hero of ages. He has no real reason to believe that the world isn't ending at this point and the end of the world is also entirely foretold by this religion that he's choosing to believe in. And like, don't get me wrong. This is still a powerful moment and very important for Sazed to come to, but it just feels weird to me. Does does that track? Does that make sense? You're struggling with it in the same way that Brandon was because he was like, it kind of jumps to conclusions here and it's a little bit deus ex religion. I think his own words in regards to Sazed's feelings here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that that's good at least. At least I'm not just totally at odds with, with the writing of this. 
How'd you feel about it? I'll talk about that in our wrap up. Um, but okay. I pretty much I pretty much agree with you. I think that there's a lot of this that is like I love Sazed's arc on the whole, but totally. this is very much like a blind siding that almost feels unnecessary considering what we're going to see happen in the last and not I don't mean when he picks up the powers. I mean when he goes out and confronts the fact that the hero is dead, right? That's what mm-hmm. I mean. This is strangely like a step too far for me personally in terms of needing the validation or like having that circle around in his head in the wrong way. Um, I I agree with you. I kind of have the same mental word salad about this whole, this whole thing. Cause it's like, he knows that the hero is true. The world is ending. The world should be saved by the hero. Well, the hero is going to come and save the world. Like that's the circular nature of the faith, right? Like, so he has to believe that Vin is the hero he already did believe that, so why, why isn't he connecting the dots? And or like, why are there dots to be connected in the first place? Right. Yeah. Part of me believes that this is put in to. Hmm, part of me believes that this was put in just to make sure that the reader got it. But in all honesty, and, and to complete the arc, like this is yeah. this is him coming to the realization that like I'm in it now. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was necessary. I would agree with you. If it were me, I would cut these paragraphs. I think it is more confusing than it is necessary. I do like I do like the idea that he this is a solidification to make sure that you get that says it's on the right side of his faith. If you somehow weren't there before, how how much repetition do we need to really get something or to understand something and or to understand the rules of something, you know? Mm-hmm. That's that is a net complaint that I have is often these books are a little repetitive in yeah. nature and I'm not sure by repetitive in nature. I mean, it's not well, Sanderson wants to make sure you get it. And in a way that is that can be very demeaning to the audience if you take it that way. And that can be all kinds of things that can be in the repetition of rules. It is definitely something that he learned from Robert Jordan a big difference is Robert Jordan had a couple of years between books on average versus like annual releases, which is how this was released or, you know, so I, I think it's tough to say because it's a good reminder of things as necessary, but you know, yeah, yeah. this is within the same book though. This is the same concept repeated within the same book a couple of times, which also happens. So like, I don't need a, I don't need, I think I've, I complained about this at the beginning of The Well of Ascension, but it's like, here's our quick reminder of how all the rules work of Allomancy within the first 30 pages when we had to kill a bunch of people. And then again, in the beginning of this book, when we had the first city that we were in, it's like, you could almost entirely cut that first city from, from a writing perspective if you didn't need to remind people about the rules. Well, it wasn't just the rules, though. It was also the storage caverns. You could have introduced that in any other number of ways. We already found one. We already know. We found four before this. Wow. I. That's my point. Like. Yeah, he is using it to introduce plot beats and other things like that. It's just a, you know, again, third pass in a year. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but we'll talk about that more later. Yeah, yeah. So, that's true. I do, I do feel like it's unnecessary. I get why it's here. Mm-hmm. It's on my book, and so Sazed begins to take this time to store his forces in his mental minds. We feel him really kind of slowing down, becoming sick again. I really just like this little bit where it's kind of like we get all of the little bits of, you know, here's the fatigue, here's the loss of sight, here's the kind of going into the meditation. It's a great, 
funny enough, it's a great reminder of how Farakemi works. <laughs> In case you don't remember. <laughs> well, I think it's, but it's actually more than it that, though. Thing. Because it's, it's, it is kind of a new thing that we're seeing. Because it's not a dedicated object that he's storing things into. It's the grates in his cell. Mm-hmm. So he's just sitting there like this until a guard comes and he's like, oh, no, I'm just fine. And then he's like meditating again. And I know that was a visual gag and this is an audio platform, but <laughs> I think you got what I was doing. I was yes. holding on to monkey bars, more or less. I just found that super cool. But it is just strength or like, yeah, strength and weight, right? Or speed and weight. I think are the two. That sounds right. Yeah. Because he doesn't have his metal mines at this point. They're Correct. They're bag yeah. that he has to collect later. Yeah. Yeah. He specifically says often when filling many, he would he would drift, and then that's how he drifts. Um, mm-hmm. But he's touching two different metals, which I think is speed and weight. Iron and steel. Yeah. Because there's a steel lock, and then there's a iron grate. So he's like... Because those are the two would, powers he uses. He like crushes we'll get there we'll get there in the fight scene but he like crushes some dude and then he like i love i love the description of farakami in fights it's fun it's it's very cool because it is a very it has so much more nuance than alamancy does in a lot of ways and the trade-offs are more dramatic Mm -hmm. so but while he drifts in and out of meditating, he is stirred by a young Chandra, Milan, Tensoon's adopted daughter of sorts, of whom is there to bust him out, along with her beloved father, back in his wolfhound body. It also, once again, finds Sazed at the center of a revolution, albeit a much smaller one. This guy doesn't know how to stay out of conflict at all, ever, I'm beginning to think. No. He's the center of, of it all. Yeah, it's almost like he's destined to become some world-renowned hero or something. It's like he's a warrior, <laughs> uh, a king who didn't want to be someone who's kind of shaken off of his own people. Uh, what? Huh, weird. What? <laughs> I am very happy here to have Tensoon and Milan reunited. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really like Sazed's description of the seventh bodies or true bodies as deviant. I think that's a great way to put them. Mm-hmm. They're all yeah. fucked up. It's like, that's weird that's not that one's got four arms yeah that one's a dog (laughs) well he knows the dog (laughs) you know (laughs) fair point (laughs) cool you know and these chandra however are looking to throw off the reins of the seconds and the insistence therein to serve the seconds what do you think about the philosophical shift of the chandra even if it was here at the last minute What, what do you make of this sort of change of the youths as it were Ironically, I don't think it's a change because the seconds are throwing off the structure. And even though they're doing it for what they believe are the right reasons for the Chandra people, these are people of creatures of structure and patience and habit and preservation. So the fact that there is a coup and things are getting shaken up, it is natural in my mind that they would be pushing against that change despite the idea that it's better that's a fair point okay i guess so thinking about the seconds they're throwing a coup 
to the status quo to like a particular clause basically in the original contract, right? Like that's what they're doing effectively. Yeah. And then we're getting a coup on top of that coup with the other generations for the most part. We'll call it the seventh. You know, most like a third, sevenths, the fifths are still kind of like muscle for the seconds. There's some rogues here and there. I, I guess the the new uprising, the second coup, not the... Hmm. <laughs> it's fighting against the first coup, right? Like, so it's... But the coup of the seconds is the first coup. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what I was that's trying That's what to... I'm saying. The sevenths yeah. are fighting against that coup, even though it's already basically happened. Yeah, but they're still fighting for something different than what the that's firsts true. represented. That's, that's my point. point. That's that's what I was trying to say, <laughs> is that, like, they don't want to go back to the contract to serve humans. They're still following the contract. They agree to follow the contract at the end of this chapter as the resolution happens and occurs. But I guess my point was, is, like, what do you think of that philosophical shift where they're, like, no more humans and, like, all of the other kind of stuff of, like, no more being under the control of humans, throwing off a lot of these things that the Lord Ruler had placed on them? That's really the difference that I was trying to pick at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Because Sezid remarks on how strange it is that they're talking about humans here. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's maybe it's interacting with Tensoon after returning from being gone, not on contract and seeing how he's able to navigate the landscape and be fine and return and seemingly to a certain extent, is kind of thriving despite going against that contract. Yeah. That rather is rather not true. being on contract. I guess like the, yeah, that, that is, that is a true reality here that we're, we're seeing. I guess my thought was more like what, hmm, how do I put this? It's certainly complicated. <laughs> I will. Well, it, it's tough to talk about too, that. because there are just so many numbers to throw around to talk about all the different occurrences as they happen. I guess I, my, my thought is, is like the Chandra are throwing off the reins of the old regime. We'll call it that way. They're looking here to up, upheave the process that they lived by before entirely. And while this is kind of a short lived <laughs> um, process here, this philosophical shift is really interesting because it speaks to an undercurrent of people that we'd kind of hinted at before, you know, from the thirds on and some other rogue generations had kind of thought, you know, about the contract as a bad thing. I, I guess if there was a future for the Chandra, how do you see that playing out? That's kind of more what I was going for. Does that make sense? Like, if this coup was successful and they implemented and they did the things, what do you see the future of the Chandra being? Hmm. No longer subservient to humans. I guess it's the really big thing. I, man, I think they'd just be people. I think that's the only way to take that because so much, like, they were they were created for a very particular task. And now that that's irrelevant. And the sort of subterfuge to like hide the fact that they have a very particular class or task was another very particular class or task. (laughs) Yeah. And now both of those things are gone in this scenario. So what are they but people? People that can imitate other people. Actors? Could they be entertainers of some sort? I I think it would just be a society that that lives and grows on its own, taking on true bodies and living amongst the population. But there's always going to be that innate fear of them because of what they have the capability of doing naturally in 
absorbing and imitating people's bodies, which is, I don't know, maybe, maybe white collar crime. Maybe they lead crime families. I don't know. I'm having trouble like figuring out what them as a unified society would really represent other than just being there. Sure. Okay. And you think that I, I think that that is a thing that is a potential future. So, I mean, I don't I don't discount that. I was just curious as to what you yeah. which direction you think they'd go if they'd be antagonistic, if they'd be like a, you know, kind of a regular group, a group of folk, which it kind of sounds like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there'd be a lot of just hostility and misunderstanding that would have to be addressed on a on a society scale from both sides. Because there's going to be disdain and like remembering that they've been enslaved and tortured to a certain extent by these people that they're now expected to go live amongst peacefully. And at the same time, the, the people see them as monsters. So how, how do you effectively get them to live together other than very slow, progressive introductions and education? It's going to take a long time. It is going to take a long time. I think that's a great point. And they're immortal. Like, that's the other thing that's so different about them versus even humanity is like on... On their time frame, on their time scale, they are they face very different. The longevity of an individual is just so different. It it just makes for a very different cultural analysis when you've got this group of immortals and what their what their world will look like or could look like. You know, mm-hmm. obviously we don't see that <laughs> because <laughs> obviously we don't see that because of how the rest of this chapter goes. But you know, curious. We we do get some excellent moments here. We'll we'll talk about that more in a second. But we get some excellent moments here of Sazed fighting, like you were saying, using up what he stored in his metal mines. The metal mines being the metals that he keyed to him when he used the ferrochemical powers on the lock and the and the grate, which was really cool. As well as manipulating lightness here to kind of float around them. It's fascinating what a ferrochemist can manage and excellent to see as he topples some fifth guard meatheads in the process. It's just so cool <laughs> to see this. Like it's a much more creative system as opposed to allomancy almost feels it's so weird it's weird to say this i feel like allomancy almost feels like cheating because it's just it makes you such an effective killing machine versus this is like creative mechanics to solve a problem does that make sense like there's more direct power with allomancy but ferrochemy has this like tangible side effect yeah it's very problem solving Mm -hmm. and yeah it's more like a chemical that. reaction than allomancy is to me. Like you've got balancing agents on a, on either side. Okay. I can see that. I can see you that. You have to balance a... your equation, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I've made the stoichiometry comparison a couple of times. Yeah, I think you have. Because it works. It makes sense. What I like about this scene more than even that is the fact that he has to, forgive me, tap dance through this because he's tapping the metal mines through his feet and the grate that he's standing on. So he has to like stay in place. And it's this really strange imagery of like, I don't know. I don't know. Like having, having to stay stationary while going through this very intense fight scene. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. Yeah. It's very cool. I'm assuming he's, he's able like- to hold the lock itself, but the grate he's like specifically like tapping with his feet. Mm-hmm. It, it, has a very avatar the last airbender feel in some like very tough ways um mm-hmm. that i enjoy but yeah i yeah that's he's totally hold, he's got to be holding the lock like that's my assumption i would think so yeah 
because it had to come off in order for him to get out. So why would he like put it back on the ground? He wouldn't is the answer. But this is also where he starts to realize like they're able to kind of brush off any piercing or slashing. They're like, oh, that's why they have hammers. <laughs> right. Like, crushing. That's why they they use they use the hammers to crush bones as opposed to stabbing because that's the type of combat that they need to do against each other if they had to um mm-hmm. yeah which is also why they're dispatched kind of jokingly in a bit so we end this chapter with finding out that the first have been locked up and had been replaced by older goo balls <laughs> of whom were being tortured here as well as Tensoon setting up a ploy to trick the seconds and this gives Sazed the opportunity to talk to the firsts one last time however we don't see it so yeah that's missing <sighs> annoyingly <laughs> Anyway, that was a genius way to hide the first. And I can't help mm-hmm. but make the comparison to how the Lord Ruler hid the trust warren right next to the pits. Like, nobody's going to look here. Nobody's going to look there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, talk to the first Gib. Gib talk. Gib. Gib talk. Gib. Gib deets. Gib deets. Uh, you know, I, and I get it. I, I do. I do want to say I level a lot of thoughts, complaints from time to time about this book and i will in the end in our hero of ages summary episode be a little bit more solid in those versus kind of hinting at them here but it is important to say that there's also a real constraint on the publishing process here it was his first series so at the same time like he only has so much wiggle room so much give that he could do and i think with the time room and everything provided all of the circumstance and constraints the story is great so i need to give it that credit however i do miss some things in my in my dream state of you know what storytelling can be i imagine if this were adapted into a tv series of which i would prefer over a movie mother of god if that isn't clear by the time you get to like mistborn totally a movie hold the first book final empire totally a movie the whole series other, one movie balcony is <laughs> only three stories up i don't know if i'd break my neck i'm just kidding no absolutely not <laughs> first one could be a movie the second two cannot be movies there is simply too much ground to cover to make it feel good and yeah. you'd gain the benefit of of exploring some of these very obvious things that are like right there that just need a little bit more of a tug or a push so mm-hmm. this is a great example Chapter 79 here. We have our logbook again. It's a long book. Let it be known. When we decided to start reading all of these, I thought it was a great idea. And the original books, they're short. They're nice. They're easy. I forgot how long they get. And now for consistency's sake, we're locked in <laughs> to uh, doing this. It's a very strange thing to have even a talking point be about. But the logbooks take up a shocking amount of time when you look at our total runtime. It's important that we talk about them because they're, you know, just as important as any other page of the story. But like, dude, that's a lot of time compared to other like books being able to focus on characters and other things like that. So it's another Mm -hmm. thing picking at my brain. Okay, 79's logbook. I believe that the mists were searching for someone to become a new host for them. The power needed a consciousness to direct it. In this matter, I am still rather confused. Why would power used to create and destroy need a mind to oversee it? And yet, it seems to only have a vague will of its own, tied to the mandate of its abilities. 
without a consciousness to direct it, nothing could actually be created or destroyed. It's as if the power of preservation understands that its tendency to reinforce stability is not enough. If nothing changed, nothing would ever come to exist. That makes me wonder who or what the minds of preservation and ruin were. Regardless, the mists, the power of preservation, chose someone to become their host long before all of this happened. That someone, however, was immediately seized by Ruin and used as a pawn. He must have known that by giving her a disguised hemorrhagic spike, he would keep the mists from investing themselves in her as they wished. The three times she drew upon their power, then, were the three times when her earring had been removed from her body. When she had fought the Lord Ruler, his allomancy had ripped it free. When fighting Marsh and Fadrix, she had used the earring as a weapon. And, at the end, Marsh ripped it out, freeing her and allowing the mists, which were now desperate for hosts since Preservation's last wisp was gone, to finally pour themselves into her. Okay. So, what this does not explain is why Vin specifically has to be the one. Couldn't they have... Oh, I guess they came to the, to the decision together, didn't they? Together and apart, right? It was because Ruin noticed preservation investing in her that he decided that he needed to chase her down. So because okay. of the careful plans of preservation to line up a lot of these details, that's why Ruin then influences the mother to kill her daughter to give the spike so that he could control the vessel, the intended vessel for the power. Okay. Fair. Totally fair. Like 40 chess in two directions. There is the other comment that says it makes about not quite understanding why the power would need consciousness to control it. And I think that can be very easily explained by what they've been talking about this entire goddamn time, that the power is the body. And those are interchangeable. And a body is nothing without a conscious mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Yeah. It's not as though the power then becomes directionless. It just is. And so I think that that's important to say that, like, you could... I think, comparatively, Preservation did a really good job breaking himself up well enough that the power would have continued and did continue for a while without a body. However, it wasn't able to act and intervene on anyone's particular behalf outside of the plans and expectations and intents that had been set earlier. And so its intent couldn't change because it didn't have someone to change it. Versus Ruin could directly influence it and be like, well, you're on autopilot over there because you're gone, you're dead, and I can do whatever the fuck I want to circumvent your autopilot that you tried to set up. Right. So, which you would think that Cezid would draw that conclusion. But at this point, this is where I think the logbook can get a little bit weaker because it's feeding us information about the story that Cezid should know because he holds the powers and can understand precisely. But the story still needs to give us enough to leave that dramatic that dramatic moment to allow it to happen. And so mm-hmm. this is almost the only thing in the entire book that feels very inconsistent (laughs) it feels inconsistent but also it it feels like we have that information at this point already like there's not a reveal that makes that make more sense later right 
So why why make it ambiguous? Agreed. I think the thing that it's making ambiguous is the bit that we're talking about. It is strictly talking about obviously when the mists flew in and why. So like that's okay. not that's not up for question. It's more the sort of intent that we're talking about and the reason that Seiza doesn't know and we know that Seiza fucking knows by the end. So it's just it's it, there's some weird things that happen around this time which makes this in particular, I talked to Lindsay about it. This in particular is the section that Lindsay was the most frustrated with, with the logbook, because so much of the story is very dependent on the logbook revealing information to us versus natural context. Right. Agreed. So I agree with her completely. Yeah. So we return to Finn, of whom is continuing to give us a shining lens through which to view the foundational power of the world. She lauds the Lord Ruler's plan. And now that we know all that we know, what do you make of the Lord Ruler and his efforts? Like we're here at the end. We can see the influence of preservation through his actions. What do you think about the Lord Ruler now? I think we've been talking about this for, for a long time. We've especially been talking about the comparisons to how the Lord Ruler operated and how Elend has been operating throughout the story. I feel like most of those arguments are still very valid. But I also still have to agree that some of those transgressions were unnecessary. But overall, he was acting consistently in trying to preserve the planet and the people on it. It's got to be a crazy burden carry especially understanding that this was all conscious yeah it's it's still tough to wrestle with and it's still a moral philosophical quandary to argue whether or not it was purely evil with each individual action taken despite the overall goal I do want to just briefly touch on that a little bit here that is a great analysis of the whole entirety of the lord ruler and i think that entirely valid and definitely a great point and i agree with holistically i did want to i did want to focus here a little bit more my intent i should say with the question was to focus a little bit more on the missteps that the lord ruler made right at the beginning with the power like the the things that he had oh. that he did on accident in comparison to vin because now we have an understanding of how easy it is to fuck up yeah, honestly, this becomes easier to discuss, I think, when Sazed starts fixing things because he has the context and the knowledge to operate within and like place the world back where it's supposed to be because of the star charts and, and all of his religious knowledge. But as far as Vin goes, she sees how easy it is to fuck up, makes us realize how easy it was for Lord Ruler to fuck up. But the Lord Ruler wasn't quite blocked on fixing those fuck-ups like Vin is in this moment. And I'm assuming that's because at that time, Ruin's already trapped and can't can't exert the same force that Vin is able to right now. Is that kind of the sort of conversation you're looking for? I think that's totally what I was looking for. Obviously, the Lord Ruler didn't face the same conflict with Ruin that Vin did or does right now actively because right. he was trapped in the well, but he did still face that balancing force to some degree. So, right. No, that's entirely what I was aiming for that time. And I totally agree with you. I, I do. I do want to say I appreciate your full retrospective on, on the Lord Ruler on the whole. Totally also great. <laughs> and 
definitely all of that stays. Um, I was just thinking in particular as we think about the power because that's where we're at with Ben. Okay. And yeah, I, I think that, like you said, I have a lot more respect for what the Lord Ruler managed given that kind of crunchy time frame mm-hmm. with the power. Yeah. So. Yeah. Even if you makes you wonder what kind of information he had in order to uh, make those decisions and know like, Hey, I've got to open up the ash mounts. So it stays cooler. Like, where do you get that information from? And it seems to beg that like a lot of this is kind of ruins fault. <laughs> like, <laughs> Despite the adjustments. And then, you know, in, in the end, the Lord Ruler is trying to fix the the damage in the same way that the tidal wave and Vin, you know, similar consequence action mm-hmm. chain. So we, we go from that moment with Vin into a quick blink and you'll miss it two paragraphs. Elend returning to his troops, beginning to lay the groundwork for what we'll see over the next couple of chapters, returning to lead those few that he sent away earlier. The Mistfallen. I think this speaks very highly of Elend. And his character, specifically because of how instantly he recognized, what were they? They were just guards, I guess. They were acting mm-hmm. as guards, as members of his army that he had mm-hmm. sent away. I don't have a whole lot to go off other than that, because you're right. It's a very quick little injection. I think Brandon also wrote about this in the annotations, but the Sen Chunk here has a very firm feel that grounds it, very similar to the way that a movie is edited. Like, this is cut jump cut jump cut jump and it very much has this sensation of watching something unfold very similar to how a movie climax would unfold and he's Mm. doing that intentionally he's utilizing that and kind of using it as best he can inside of the medium yeah and that's definitely not a criticism for the record or even like a those of you at home that think i'm just a critic just kidding no i Uh, love it (laughs) No, I, I really like it too. I think that it's it's great. I think that it's an interesting thing that you don't find until the pervasiveness of movies. And I think that's kind of what he, he begs the question of like, writing is different because we have movies. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't know, but it's how I think about things. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, works. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to not to say anything about Joe Abercrombie, right? But the way he literally was a film editor. Like, that was his job. And so, fantastic writer was a fucking film editor. So like the way that he thinks about and constructs scenes is very much like how a film editor would think about constructing a story. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It sounds cool. Yeah. We'll get there eventually. Sure. We, we move to Sazed and the Chondra are moving back into place to take back what's theirs. When Tensoon is suddenly seized and turns back on his friend, attacking him and choking him. I find the comedy here when Sazed's being choked very odd. It's not that it isn't real, but the lightness with which says it approaches the shock and surprise is really. I'll stick with odd. You can hear says it can hear the call for the resolution, of course, and blacks out while many of the conjure go for their spikes. What do you think about this moment? I agree with you. The comedy was odd. What I do appreciate here. Is that we've already been exposed to Tensoon's ability to oppose this control like he did with zane and vin and i i'm assuming i feel like it's safe to assume that this is due to one of his blessings specifically the one that like fortifies his his mental capacities i can't remember what it's called though do you remember presence presence yes i'm assuming that has to 
do with why he's able to kind of break out a little bit and give Sazed a warning of what's going on. Much like he was able to warn Vin subtly about how to how to break the contract. I think it's also a part of the reason that Sazed, or not Sazed, excuse me, Tensoon is controlled first is because he has three spikes in him. He has more than most Chondra do, right? So if his, his set of spikes, I think that's why he's grabbed and not like Milan or someone else as control is wrested from them. I think that it is easiest for Ruin to grab onto Tensoon. And so he does. I think that that yeah. logically makes the most sense. It isn't something that's talked about at all <laughs> inside of the book, but... You know, I think we can infer pretty pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. With that, we go into chapter 80. We've got our long book here. The Chondra people <laughs> always said they were a preservation, while the Coloss and Inquisitors were of ruin. Yet the Chondra bore hemorrhagic spikes, just like the others. Was their claim then simple delusion? No, I think not. They were created by the Lord Ruler to be spies. When they said such things, most of us interpreted that as meaning he planned to use them as spies in his new government because of their ability to imitate other people. Indeed, they were used for this purpose. But I see something more grand in their existence. They were the Lord Ruler's double agents, planted with hemorrhagic spikes, yet trusted, taught, bound to pull them free when Ruin tried to seize them. In Ruin's moment of triumph, when he'd always assumed the conjurer would be his on a whim, the vast majority of them immediately switched sides and left him unable to seize his prize. They were of preservation all along. So, I like that description, and I like that explanation. What I don't like about that is it goes against what we've been operating under, assumption-wise, that the Lord Ruler didn't understand the connection between hemolurgy and ruin. Because we had talked about that a couple times in the past. And now it seems like he was completely aware and like used it against him. And that I don't like that. (laughs) I think the rationale there is that it's his third and final creation. Right. So it's like he he didn't know what he was doing. But he uses it himself too. like he he keeps hemorrhagic spikes in himself so that he could live forever. In part and could have more powers like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Fair. Fine. Fine is the way that I feel about it as well, for the record. There, there's a lot of things that are just like, this logbook is particularly grating as we get closer to the end of the story. Because it is, it is like, it is giving us reveals or moments like this. And I, I think a more, a more nuanced way of saying this is like, these were the terrorist people. They were always in preservation, right? And so they knew because they were this deeper combination of preservation and ruin it made sense for them to be more of preservation than of ruin in the same way. So they could pull their spikes trained, blah, blah, blah. All of this stuff fits, but the timing that we're being reminded of this information also makes me believe again, that Brandon doesn't trust the readers to put this together entirely in this moment on their own. Does that Mm. make sense? Again, like it's a lot of this final log book is like reiterating things like, did you get it? I feel like it's a lot of, did, did you get it? This isn't, I'm not trying to gotcha you. And it's like, no, I, I got it. I, I did get it. I swear. <laughs> so I think that can be forgiven based on the reason this logbook exists in the first place. Right. Yes. It's not written for the readers hypothetically, quote unquote. 
It's written for spook. Yes, entirely. So I get that. And yeah, the point that Lord Ruler got his ferricomy through hemolurgy explains it enough. But Right. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It does. And, you know, it, it, another another point to push on there is that he implanted the metal mines also so that they couldn't be fucked with by other Alamancers. So, like, he was... There were a lot of things going on there that the Lord Ruler was trying to use to assert his dominance because the only way that you could pull something out of someone in the end, as we find, is with something like a Duralamin push. Is is something that is empowered beyond conventional Alamancy that was available at the time. You would need a purer form of Alamancy. Or an enhanced one with... Yes. Hemology. Yeah, exactly. So... You know, you can get that sense of like he was using it kind of to be extra godly. I actually don't think he requires hemology to live forever. I think I said that incorrectly. I believe well, it's a compounding effect of... He does. Because he I, doesn't have ferrochemy to begin no, with. He, he does have ferrochemy to begin he with. Or he did. Yeah. Yeah. Alendi didn't. Correct. Yes, because Alendi yeah. was Kaleni. Right. Yes. Okay. So then what's the just being more powerful, really? Yeah, ensuring his survival, his own preservation, right? Like by being more powerful than everyone else. And because he actually knows what he's going up against in the form of ruin, I can see that hubris a little bit. He didn't realize how it was going to wear on him over a thousand years. And he could have pulled out the spikes. It's not like he's an inquisitor who's surviving because of the spikes. He just felt strong enough that... You know, there are a couple mm-hmm. of rationales there, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. I read the logbook. The book returns to Ellen after he was found, after he has found Demu and begin to figure out what can be done here for the people, but they already have hope. While, while I reading this feel a sense of like panic in this moment, the terrorist men and the army have come together despite the misfortune in Luthadel under Penrod. And then there's another bit, that of the survivor leading them here to begin with and how that faith is also propelling them. Like this feels very stable compared to a lot of the rest of the story we're experiencing in this moment. This feels hopeful despite mm-hmm. the ever-present end of the world that we're kind of subsumed with. Yeah. Thinking about this now, would you agree that it feels fair to say that the Church of the Survivor is somehow unintentionally a sect of the terrorist religion? No. No? No. Okay. I don't think so. They don't worship. Okay. Well, no. No. It says it's not even on their clock. You know? True. But, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Good point. But, like, I get, I get what you're saying. I just don't think that they align quite so cleanly. Like, they do have... They do have similar tenets, I guess, kind of. Or they have overlapping points but i don't think that they're like a sect of the same thing okay yeah yeah you're right (laughs) you're right like you've convinced me you're right (laughs) yeah it's it's tough because i don't want to i don't want to completely shit on that but i do i do really think that worshiping kelsier is completely different than worshiping the hero the eventual Mm -hmm. hero 
the que- there there is a question there though that is like what does religion what does the terrorist religion look like post the hero like this religion foretells a hero showing up what's your post text which is very similar to i mean if you are a christian it is very similar to the way that judaism and like the old testament is then moved forward into christianity with the new testament and the coming of jesus and blah blah what do we do after we live after a survivor comes etc like that's all but regardless this this gets into like faith is based on yeah. like a cycle though isn't it i think that that is a ruin manipulation ah okay I don't think it was ever intended to be cyclical. I think that that is a textual manipulation by Ruin to convince that the hero comes and goes, to point to Rashek, to then point to Vin, to say, let me out of my prison! I'm down with that. As opposed to the original faith, of which, as we get from the firsts, doesn't point to a cycle at all. Mm-hmm. So. Cool. Yeah. Ah, we cut, of course, to Sazed, waking up to most of the Conjurer being reverted themselves or having reverted themselves rather into goo-like mistwraiths bones placed without intelligence or design that these creatures just minutes before had it's sad to see them turn back into this unconscious mass kind of squiggling and splurting around on the floor but at the same time this was like their end objective they're like this was their trade for immortality um turns out it was only a thousand years but you know yeah well i don't know i don't know about that Still, I really was hoping for something more unexpected to happen when they removed the spikes, but it, instead it, it is exactly what they assumed would happen with the one maybe clarification that you could make, but maybe unknown. What happens if they get re-spiked? Do they come back to sen- sentience in the same way that they were before with the same memories, with the same brain, with the same thoughts, or do they return to sentience as a different Chandra? It's a great question. And is the myth, is the mist wraith the immortal being that was promised as opposed to the Chandra themselves? Because they were explicitly turned into mist wraiths with immortality and then spiked and turned into Chandra. Mm-hmm. Presumably with immortality, but this clause. It's a great question. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's always another secret. There's always another secret. There's always another secret. Ah, but of course, that isn't all of them, meaning all of the mistwrites, not all of the secrets. Any of them have survived. At least 20 here that are working, 20 of the Condra, I should say, that are working to pop open the trust warrant to let Ruin get to the ATM. And so Sazed gets all of his metal mines out, but grabs two in particular and locks the Condra into the room with his strength and weight holding against the door. Hold More. the door. Hold the door. <laughs> I'll never complain about ferrocene mechanics. I love yeah. seeing them written down and explained so much. Yeah, I I think that ferrochemy is the superior system. <laughs> I prefer ferrochemy to allomancy. I think that allomancy is great, but again, it's like a bunch of flashy card tricks and, you know, is explained by expending the resource in your stomach. I get it. It's got to balance. It's cool. I, I, it's got its takes and subs and flows. It's got its gives. I get it. I get the rules. Don't yell at me. But I do like, do prefer Farrakhemi's very outlined, delineated restrictions more, mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. I think I agree. 
because it's not just the rate at which a metal burns is so abstract, but the idea of needing to spend time lethargic without senses or whatever to then expend it in bursts, much more reasonable. My brain can handle it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like especially after a nap, I can run further. Especially considering that some metals burn faster than others. Like, right. Yeah. It's like, what's, that's what's true. faster mean? Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And like, mm. at what point do we get down to like, I need an equation of how quickly a block of pewter this big would burn. So then I can equate that to, the, and it just gets silly at a certain point. Like, because it is technically, it is so scientifically written and scientifically minded that it just ends up being like, you you can just keep scratching at it. And I want to keep scratching at it until I get to the very bottom because it is so well-defined. Right. Versus ferrochemy, it kind of already feels like we're at the bottom in a, in a good way. Like it feels like I have everything with ferrochemy except for maybe some unknown metals, but yeah. Yeah. And the one thing that I do want more out of ferrochemy is the, the logic behind it not being usable by other ferrochemists. Hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Why can't that be accessed? So. It's a great question. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get there. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? You do. Who? Well. At this point. <laughs> At a certain point, we're going to hit books where it's going to be like, there are questions still, I don't know, kind of like we did with Red Rising. <laughs> and the problem is, is that those books that may pose those questions, there are seven books that are left to be write, written in the series, probably over 20 years. Like, what? <laughs> what? Okay, moving up. Ellen begins to hear whispers like he had heard before and finds it odd, cursing, and then realizing that it's been leading him and his soldiers to exactly where they need to be. He makes it to the trust warren and just easily owns the translucent chondra that are there, like easily breaking true bodies and reverting the chondra to gelatin. He comes to realize not the power of the metal within, but Venture focuses on how he could get people in here so that they could, of course, survive. Yeah. In this moment, that's the more important goal, really. Like, he is a man of the people. He's, mm-hmm. He doesn't have the perspective of this This god fight you know Mm -hmm. right he this is true to who he always has been someone who cares about the people that he's in charge of so like i would be a upset that he would suddenly know about the atm being like that important for that reason but b i'd be upset that he would go against his character in such a way if he were to do that. So, yeah, I, I think it's a great moment to reinforce that Ellen is for the people first and always has been right. Especially since we know where he ends at this point, we now have, we can, we can like point back at this and be like, Ellen in the end did manage to combine all of the different sides of his personality into a force to be reckoned with that focused on people first i do think it's interesting that like the focus here is obviously on getting the people in to survive but this comes into conflict with my thought about his faith in the survive in the church of the survivor and i don't think it's talked about enough in this book for us to really spend a whole lot of time on it's maybe once or twice that that demu like pushes back on it but also the faith itself is so amorphous as like survival as the goal that it's 
odd. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't I don't know how much more I can add to that conversation outside of that, if that makes sense. But no, I'm with you. Feels like there's something there to like scratch at, but I'm not sure that it would reveal anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think there's enough like connective tissue to really dig in. Right. Cool. All right. With that, we're in chapter 81, baby. This is the long chapter. This is this is the big fat boy, and that includes a big fat logbook. <laughs> Snapping has always been the dark side of Allomancy. A person's genetic endowment may make them a potential Allomancer, but in order for the power to manifest, the body must be put through extraordinary trauma. Though Ellen spoke of how terrible his beating was during our day, unlocking Allomancy in a person was easier than it had once been. For we had the infusion of preservation's power into the human bloodlines via the nuggets granted to the nobility by the Lord Ruler. I'm going to pause there. That is why Elendi definitely had abilities, but it wasn't snapped until much later, right? This is why he was able to be snapped is because they, or the reason that snapping was so easy in the Final Empire versus how hard it was before, which is why Alendi was probably the very first Alamancer on record for a long fucking time. That makes sense. Just, just wanted to say that. So going back to the logbook, when preservation set up the mist, he was afraid of rune escaping his prison in those early days before the ascension, the mist began to snap people as they did during our time. But this action of the mist was one of the only ways to awaken Alamancy in a person for the genetic attributes were buried too deeply to be brought out by a simple beating. The mists of that day created mistings only, of course. There were no mistborn until the Lord Ruler made use of nuggets. The people misinterpreted the mists' intent, as the process of snapping alamancers caused some, particularly the young and old, to die. This hadn't been preservation's desire, but he'd given up most of his consciousness to form Ruin's prison, and the mists had to be left to work as best they could without specific direction, intent like we were saying before. Ruin, subtle as ever, knew that he couldn't stop the mists from doing their work. However, he could do the unexpected and encourage them, and so he helped make them stronger. That brought death to the plants of the world and created the threat that became known as the deepness. I appreciate this explanation more than a lot of them so far. I think it answers a ton of the questions that we've had throughout the story and throughout last week specifically. It explains the death to a certain extent. I wish it would have just been, yeah, they were misborn, but oops, didn't get them pewter in time. That could have been fun to explore as a concept. But yeah, I I like this overall. I really like this one too. I think this is a great thing that isn't explained by the text previously and it's a great it like we were kind of putting like i put together in the middle there like this is the the proof that elendi was an alamancer this is how this gives us context to a lot of things like why mistborn couldn't have existed beforehand why they were never reported in kwan's journal or diaries and a, a number of different components that otherwise wouldn't have been touched on this chapter exposes a lot of information in a you know we had talked about the previous chapters kind of like i don't know this is too way too harsh, but like making a fool of the reader to some degree or like kind of feeling a little bit demeaning if you didn't catch something. This mm -hmm. is the opposite of that, where this is much more 
much more of a, a grounded explanation as to something that we may not have gotten otherwise. Like, why was it called the deepness? Like, what was this? And this is more like, hey, here are these details that do not make sense to talk about necessarily in the plot right now. But Sazed would have access to because he's the hero of ages and has access to all of this information and knowledge in the depths of the power's attributes. Yeah. All right, on into the chapter itself. I find it very interesting that Ruin is the big talker here, while Vin is more focused on using her powers as opposed to enumerating his plan further, you know, and kind of like operating. And he's just kind of giving away the information like we were saying earlier. He keeps giving up more and more and more and more pieces of different information, including an incredibly important number that hundreds of thousands of Coloss are coming, charging toward Elend and the few hundred soldiers that we have that he yeah. has rather. I was wondering when this would become relevant. And I appreciate truly that we got a glimpse of this from Marsh's perspective earlier on in the book. I think without that, this would have felt pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, suddenly giant fucking army. Sorry. Like, but yeah. the fact that this had been established and it always been kind of in the back of our minds a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That felt good. As we get to the end of the story here, I appreciate how Marsh is like the Swiss army knife of the plot beats in a lot of ways. Like he connects us to Penrod. He connects us to the death of Gorodel, which then gets us to the conclusion with Vin, which like it's all of these small little things. And he very much is that interconnective. If you had like a conspiracy wall with a bunch of photos on it, he would be the red line connecting all of the dots um, yeah. in a in a big way, which in turn means that it's kind of Rune's fault, downfall. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely from a perspective point. Yeah. So, man, and the world as painted by Vin's godly site gives us this impression of destruction that reminds me of those slice of the world and like geographical features maps that we had like back in elementary school where you see like mountains and archipelagos on the same continent with like islands and waterfalls and volcanoes. And then you see desert and like all of these different, you know, locations kind of blending in together. It just reminds me of that because you have this extra extracted view it's just such it's it's just so vast that it's almost hard to discern anything beyond the general destruction and especially given the way that she's interacted with the world incidentally causing more and more and more of this chaos and destruction herself so she decides to do something else and slams the powers together forcing a direct clash between her and ruin yeah i had brought up that tidal wave earlier probably crushing another city that we're not aware of and potentially another <laughs> kingdom that we're not aware of. But this really just makes me wonder how many more little or large societies are around those, this planet that we're not made aware of. Is that addressed and I'm just missing it? No. Okay. Cool. The only other thing that's mentioned, I think in a, in a log book at some point in this book is life on the poles. Okay, so life on the poles and city crushed by tsunami, right? Yeah. But we don't necessarily know if that city is within the central dominance or the, the dominance. It may have been in the previous we book. Of. It's definitely... I do remember life on the poles. Yeah. But maybe I just remember it from you saying it. I don't know. No, it's it's definitely... Yeah. It's definitely in well of a century, okay. but regardless, the, the point being here that it is interesting that we, we only sit here for the most part. So, and seemingly ruin and preservation 
spend a lot of their time here. <laughs> yes, but. yes. So it does beg the question of, is there anything else anywhere else? Where was that tidal wave headed? Did it, like, was that... Because we know that there are cities on the coast on this continent, but and we also know that there are other continents, kind of. We get that illusion when we go to Sazed's perspective, for sure. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> we go back to Elend and Sazed having a final conversation about what is to be done about the ATM. Sazed believes that Vin will come as she is the hero of ages, the one who will arrive to save the people, especially considering this dwindling army of under a thousand troops. You know, kind of doesn't look very good. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk more about them in a second, specifically about Faith, but here we see the revelation that these men aren't conventional Alamancers, but all of them are seers who can burn ATM. Yeah. Great bit of information. I'm still confused by the ATM and how it fits into everything. And it's strictly of ruin, not of preservation. So how can the mist impart that power into somebody? Yeah. And like, how is it not under the influence of preservation? Allomancy is the ability to burn metals. Okay. And that's what... Ferrochemy is the ability to store things in metals. Hemallergy is the ability to granted by killing people and stealing their powers with metal, basically. Okay. So then it's just a matter of creating the metals that can be burned. Correct. Yes. Okay. Or that certain metals are burnable, you know? Right. Because some metals are not, so... Or don't result in powers that we we know or are aware of. So, gotcha. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think this book does a pretty good job of pointing to the fact that these that ATM and Malatium don't fit on the regular chart because they are ruins body. So does that you mentioned that last week and then think mm-hmm. re, like rethinking about it? I tried to make sense of that does that mean they're not one of the 16 correct okay so then why is it still 16 like one in 16 that that's a great question are affected mm-hmm. okay maybe there's a different answer there's always another secret so many 16s that have been painstakingly set up in this world so yeah, PJ is flipping me off and r- rolling them, just rolling them like <laughs> dice. Um, <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they can all burn ATM. Pretty neat. Demu and says its faith, though, here is interesting to juxtapose, I think. One believes in the coming of a hero to save them in a dire hour, and the other believes in a man who inspired them through his sheer will to survive, despite <laughs> all odds. But they're at dramatically different points here inside of their religious faiths, right? Like, Sazed is at absolute highs believing that he's going to show up. And Demu's almost completely fallen at the bottom here in a in a very different way. And just a quote before we kind of get to the end here. Demu says, I felt like a man waiting his turn before the headsman ever since we spotted those Coloss. Maybe the survivor didn't want us, doesn't want us to succeed here. Sometimes people just have to die. And this seems to be very kind of counter to the survivorist faith and like a loss of it here in the end like i can't stand up to the reality of the circumstance obviously there is something 
to the survivor faith that stretches to say like, well, I deserve this, I guess, which is the juxtap, which is like the rationale. But what what do you think? I I don't think he's of the mind that he deserves it anymore. He was earlier, and then I think he is right there. That quote. That quote, I think, is putting trust in the survivor despite despite it not meaning that he's going to thrive through it and saying, like, this this plan is bigger than us specifically. Hmm. Okay, so you're not you're not suggesting that you don't think that they're on opposite sides of the spectrum. You're saying that they are kind of on the same coin. Like they're Hmm. both deeply in their faith as opposed to Demu kind of being I can see that. I don't know right. if I fully agree with it, but I can see it. Yeah, sometimes people just have to die. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's not him falling out of faith. That's him saying like that Kelsier's plan for us or the survivor's plan for us is to perish here, but put up as big of a fight as possible. And hey, we're distracting this giant army. Maybe there's something else going on because that army isn't wherever it could be otherwise. You know what I'm trying to say? I do. I do. I definitely, I do get it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I thought about it that way. I think that makes sense. It is less of a loss of faith and more of it. <laughs> it just feels so loosey goosey to me. Um, it does. As far I'll as like an that. interpretation is, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. But it, he's not saying maybe the survivor isn't here he's saying maybe the survivor doesn't want us to succeed meaning that he still believes that this is the survivor's will plan yeah will right yeah i yeah i think i I think i think that is completely reasonable and that i think it makes a lot of sense to have two faiths especially with what brandon's going here to have two faiths come to similarly different conclusions on you know what the end of the world means to them and their religion. Like that's an interesting presentation too, to think about. Yeah. Yeah, That's fair. Yeah. I don't know. It's still dire circumstances that are changing Demu's perspective. So either way like that, that's valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. You've, you've convinced me I'm wrong with that, with that assumption. Yeah. Cool. All right, after the seer reveal, we go back to Vin throwing herself against Ruin, trying to destroy this god and malevolent force that she's dehumanized by not calling him a he, but calling him a thing from here on out. That's fine. And again, she's terrified of feeling the deaths that are to come when she hears a voice, her husband's voice, giving a terrific speech that reminds me so much of Bill Pullman's Independence Day speech when he's, you know, this is our Independence Day. But it is a really lovely moment of chills when he says, in the end, they will kill us. But first, they shall fear us. And that feels very similar to the aforementioned Bill Pullman line. And it feels like that Braveheart Braveheart. charge. Yeah, exactly. And he charges out into what is an absolutely magnificent scene of combat which almost feels like cheating because it's so good and i mean that in the context of like atm makes it so good so it kind of feels like cheating but it's still so good we also Mm -hmm. (laughs) we see how when they begin to get close to running out they run back and get more from sazed who's helping feed them the beads to continue to fuel the conflict i assume there are other terrorist men doing it too but you know yeah yeah i just want to know converted to like (laughs) Final Empire 
monetary value, how much fucking money was dropped on this war right here. Because I think Ellen says that his little handful that he starts off with was like more than his entire keep and his like entire his family's entire fortune throughout his entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an incomprehensible amount of money based on the economic. <laughs> you know. It would truly shatter the supply demand curve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would. If it were introduced into the ecosystem. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Flood the market flood the market <laughs> that would be very good to know yeah that that charge and that speech though are just inspiring it's, i felt it's, like i wanted to charge it yeah yeah it does it does make you feel like it's like oh fuck yeah like total total great <laughs> chills moment and then the combat itself is is pretty excellently written it does lack just a little bit of drama because atm does that naturally like that's just the nature of atm is that it makes you so good that you know it's a non-contest <laughs> yeah even against three hundred thousand coloss which is why i think he does a really good job of inserting stakes a little bit further down the road here but at first it does have kind of that gleam of you know i i think it could have been done in a way where you get these little glimpses of moves that had to be made in order to fight like eight coloss at once mm-hmm. and we don't get yeah. a ton of that Instead, we get almost like a 300-esque, you know, slow-mo, dodge this, dodge that, get that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's quick. He's not he's not burning pages here. He probably, he could have, but to main, pay, maintain pace, I think, realistically, I think it is just the ATM that makes this feel different, but it's not a bad thing. Again, this is just a sort of a general thought, more or less, is it, it does feel a little bit less weighty in its own right, but the speech makes gives it a ton of heft regardless so right cutting back to our gods we get vin really pressing on kind of the emotions here she says we create things to watch them grow ruin to take pleasure in seeing that which we love become more than it was before you said that you were invincible that all things break apart all things are ruined but there are things that fight against you and the ironic part is you can't even understand those things. Love, life, growth. The life of a person is more than the chaos of its passing. Emotion ruin. That is your defeat. I see where she's going with this, but I do not truly buy this argument. And maybe that's just my fault. I don't know. But ruin clearly has expressed emotions throughout this whole thing. Like, primarily rage. And wanting, but there's still emotions and he's still feeling them and expressing them. So it's logical to me to assume that he can understand those emotions of the people that he's interacting with. Maybe that's naive. Maybe that's just wrong. I don't know, but this feels like a, a weird, I need to force in love somehow as like an answer to defeat i felt this Hmm. way before when she mentioned it as well fair enough i guess thematically this does a good job i think the line that stands out the most cleanly to me right is the life of a person is more than the chaos of its passing i would have just ended it there that is such a good summation Mm -hmm. of what he's actually going for here that 
love life growth, whatever. It's chuggy. It's a chuggy saying that you can throw up on a little sign and put on your mother's like dashboards or wherever cabinets. Like it totally <laughs> put it is, in her like, car. <laughs> yeah, put it in her car. Whatever. I don't give a shit. Love life growth. Like I get it. It has this emotional weight to it, especially when read. I think it's delivered very well. But I do really think that my brain. My book, I would just end with the life of a person is more than the chaos of its passing, because that's what ruin it like ruin is degradation. Ruin is is getting people to the point of decay. It is change. It's a lot of things. And I agree with you on the side of like emotion ruin. That is your defeat. That feels weird because ruin understands emotion. He is emotion in a lot of like he isn't actually emotion, but he is emotional in a lot of ways. And it's not mm-hmm. as though he lacks. He's not so he's not so like black and white evil so as to just be the embodiment of of badness he is much more nuanced than just a black void which is kind of the way that like vin paints him in a odd way that i don't agree with here yeah 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 i agree it's it's very much the life of a person is more than just the chaos of its passing is i love that yeah right it's definitely one of the best lines in in the book realistically because it is like this culmination it's not it's not about the end it's it's about the culmination of everything that you were mm-hmm. and could be says <laughs> it we, we have a quick little inter intermission here it's i think it's literally again like two paragraph says it reiterates his faith saying she will come of course this is classic it's it's nothing crazy it's a quick cut a lot of these are just quick cuts back and forth even to the point of like literally blending together perspectives in different moments which makes me go, are we in Vin's head when we're seeing, like, how are we viewing this? This is when the book gets just a little bit messy, but... Yeah, regardless, though, even though it's very short, it is good to see and experience Sazed post-Sad Boy days. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's nice to see him not wallow in his book catalog, Dead Religions. Yeah. yeah. He's going to get there in a second. He's going to get back to all those dead religions. It's going to be so exciting. Elend has begun to run out of metals, though, in this moment. And we begin to see the soldiers fall to the Colossus. They run out of ATM. And in addition to running out of ATM, their own natural strength to just keep them going. Because unlike Elend, they all can't burn pewter like he is here. Beyond just their ability to see and predict the movements, they're running out of everything. And then Marsh shows up, our physical big bad in this story. Just to challenge our boy, Ellen, he manages to wield, he, Ellen manages to wield a sword against him as, and as Marsh pushes against it with Alamancy, it is protected by something else. The power of Vin, of preservation given to directly empower her love of her life, her husband, to guide him in this moment. Yeah, much like preservation was able to funnel power into Vin through the mists. It's nice to see that come around. And now Ellen is chosen by Vin. She was chosen by preservation. It It is. It is that kind of great moment. Ah, and then our boy Ellen burns ATM with Duralamin in a powerful burst, gaining knowledge, understanding, acceptance. I, I it is so patently clear and unclear <laughs> as to what is gained here. And I, I, I think that it's. It's good. I don't I don't have any complaints about it or anything like that. I just think that it is a lot, but it is enough for him to also feel acceptance because he has all of this in his head. And it's also full circle because the knowledge and understanding of as much as possible by doing this powerful burning push feels full circle for our scholar as well. So it's like 
mm-hmm. you know, it, it has implications there that I really like. I'll let you comment on that before I go into the rest. No, I I liked the description of the Duralman ATM push. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's kind of ambiguous as to what's actually being gained here. I like to think that it just kind of pushes the scale a little bit so it's not just balancing each other out, you know? It's like comprehension. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Like full comprehension. I wonder if there's some future sight tucked in there in some way, shape, or form. Like some true future look in like distant futures or in comprehension of reality and knowledge and like the way that people will be so intelligent, you know? Like I wonder how much or how deep he sees. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like I'd like a more clear explanation, but that can't really happen in this moment. No. So I like how it's described regardless. Yeah. I passionately. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it is it's a, it is a very passionate like description, and I think it's really well done, especially since it does end up becoming Ellen's kind of final moments. Marsh comes at him and buries an obsidian axe in his chest. But with Vin behind him, as we said, even more of the power of Alamancy flows through him, charging him, healing him to a certain degree, pushing him a pewter. But he's still wounded like he has this unbelievable manifestation of power pressed in him that allows for him to fight back a little bit. But he's he's down for sure. We move to human and man, this was his part to play in the whole story. He charges down the tunnels, pushing people out of the way and is the eyes of of ruin or ears and finds the pit empty with no ATM remaining. Ellen burned the last of it in that final glorious push. That's so good (laughs) yeah it just feels so good Mm -hmm. um and i can totally see this being a very dramatic scene in in whatever sort of adaptation comes through of this mindless semi-mindless but controlled lovable oaf of a 12-foot killing machine corpse um (laughs) yeah Pulling off this uh, this seal and seeing an empty fucking vault. I yeah, I I really liked the imagery there. Yeah, I I loved it. I I really I really enjoy it. I think it's a great great shot. I think this entire chapter is so. And I was just kind of ragging on it because it gets kind of blurry. But at the same time, from an adaptation perspective, this is so clear what he intended. This is so perfectly clear as he imagined jumping back and forth from a. And it it feels strong going into an adaptation or to put it in your mind's camera. It feels good. It's not the cleanest prose handoffs at different moments. And that's a a knock against it from a book perspective. But again, fuck it. Like this is this is a great. Mm -hmm. It's great. You can break rules as long as you do it well. (laughs) And that's that's the rule. (laughs) So. Ellen smiles in this moment, a victorious smile at the Inquisitor and explains to some long off God that his body and power are gone. Talking to Ruin in the metaphorical distance, they'd taken it up and burned that power away and Martian Ruin in rage cleaves Ellen's head off. I know I should be feeling sad in this moment and I do, but more than that, I feel like this was a great representation or the start of a great representation of the annihilation that occurs when these two powers collide between Ellen and Marsh as this sort of stand-in for Vin and Ruin. I thought it was a beautiful end to Ellen. Like he he burned so brightly after after being reborn as a mistborn and 
fought to the death in in the most selfless and important way possible. So Marsh doesn't die at the same time, obviously, but I don't know. That's okay, I think. It doesn't yeah. have to happen instantaneously. Well, right. I, I think that the idea that Rune's body is gone and that was the annihilation makes sense. Yeah. It was it was another yeah. trade. So it does feel like that push and pull. And I totally agree with you. I think in this moment, Vin also recognizes that she was lucky to have this extra time with Ellen and that this was not time that she was supposed to get with him. And so I think that there is that extra extra bit of kind of reflection from her perspective, because I think she also feels like she should feel sad, but doesn't in the same way mm -hmm. again. I think she almost not not identically, but she has a similar state of feelings. And given she's also a god, so like how many feelings do you really experience share have? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. It It is a very it was a very shocking moment to me the first time that I read it because I did not anticipate Ellen's death. I didn't anticipate a beheading, but going into that fight, I, I kind of did. Hmm. I would have felt even despite. Hmm. I can't imagine it any other way for the record. I just like yeah. didn't anticipate it going in the first time. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, I don't. I just. I. I think it does less of a service if Ellen Orvin lives. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. That that speech, that final impassioned speech, just felt mm -hmm. so final. It does feel like his kind of last moment of I get to pr triumphantly proclaim that I am this grandiose leader, and it is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, we're at the end of this chapter. We've got our final little bit here. Vin, with the power of preservation and almost everyone she knows and loves, dead and gone, finds peace in this moment as opposed to sadness at the loss of all of these people over the course of time. She pressed onward, driving herself and the power into ruin, exposing preservation and the plan he had held all along. That humanity, with the ability to ruin and preserve, was always meant to be ruin's downfall. This potent combination forces his eventual end she utters her final words before she obliterates the body inhabiting ruin you created the thing that can kill you ruin and you just made one huge final mistake you shouldn't have killed elland you see he was the only reason i had left to live and she obliterates the both of them their minds puffing away like mist under a hot sun yeah so what what does she do in this moment to actually like cause the obliteration so Give him a hug. I mean, so when they, when she was running into the force, she was feeling her like life force ebb away as she like if she pushed further. Right. She was feeling I, I think you did a good job of describing it as annihilation. Like she was feeling that annihilation on her presence whenever she tried to push directly against ruin as opposed to what he was doing in the world. And so. This is her just accepting annihilation as a trade. OK, OK. I can. I can get behind that. Regardless, for the rest of that, I think we talked a lot about that in the previous section. Like, I feel like my my feelings in the previous section very much mirror what what Vin feels here. Just kind of at peace, despite being like, there's sadness. Of course, there's sadness and loss, but peace about it. And I think that I think that's the healthy way to address this. Mm -hmm. I, 
I do. I really love this. I really love this ending. And I think that it makes the most sense for Vin. And I think we did reiterate kind of a lot of those similar feelings. I think that also at the same time, I do have the smallest wish that trust would have tied in here to some degree, like her willingness to love and like accept people did because in the end when she was out of love, I guess she was just out. Is that supposed to be my takeaway here, Brandon? But like, and who, who's everyone that she loved? Like, it's Say just still alive. Breeze is still alive. Like there's still there. Ham's still holes. alive. Ham's still alive. But there are a lot of people dead, and I guess that's kind of her point. And I, I do, I do think it's a little bit of an oversight to not point to Sazed. She does talk about the crew on the whole, but to like kind of skip over Sazed. Yeah. That said, if I think about it for just a second longer, I can also say maybe she knew what Sazed's job was about to be. Like she might have had enough of an inkling because of preservation's plan and piecing it together that she knew that she couldn't, you know, hold the power forever. So that's fair. I couldn't. I could happily accept that as an explanation, but I still think it's a little bit too hyperbolic to say that almost all of the people that I love are dead. Because we've interacted with so many people and a lot of them are still alive. Let's see. Trust. You mentioned trust and wondering why that doesn't play a bigger role here. I think I think we got the trust payoff when talking to Ellen. Yeah, we got the trust payoff earlier in the story. I get it. I just wish it would have tied in here a little bit. You're right. This is, again, where I go to the general a general thought that I've expressed a couple of times where Ellen and Vin don't change a whole lot over the course of the story. They aren't even really the main characters, despite getting enough character time to like basically that they should be. They don't really change that much. And we do get the wrap up there. I just wish it would have tied in here a little bit. And that's where I I in my head canon that I just recanted to you. I think that that is the trust tie in is that she trusts Sazed to do the next step to do the right thing. And so she chooses Annihilation because she trusts Sazed to do the right thing. I would hope that's that's my assumption. I like that. That's how I wrap the theme together in my own head. <laughs> Definitely had canon, but yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts about? Hmm. Not right now. I think there will be more thoughts when we get to tie it all together in the wrap up though. Okay. So our final, is there our final logbook? Second to last. Oh. It's not our final logbook. God damn it. We have one more. <laughs> so chapter 82, our last chapter. <laughs> <laughs> we have a logbook. Once Vin died, the end came quickly. We were not prepared for it, but even all of the Lord's rulers planning could not have prepared us for this. How did one prepare for the end of the world itself? Short and sweet. Fucking finally. <laughs> this is what all of the logbooks were before <laughs> this. Book. I know. Like they're all like a couple of sentences. How did I forget I how horrifically long they get? Not horrifically, but to read out loud every episode, it takes up a good chunk of time. I've already talked about it. How does one prepare for the end of the world? Like this, apparently. I guess. Lord Ruler was kind of a prepper, right? He had like cans and food and water and shelters. He had an emergency shelter in the backyard. (laughs) Yeah. I'm never going to not imagine the Lord Ruler as a prepper now. I can't believe I just came to that conclusion. (laughs) Oh, that'd be good. Cool. We move to Sazed, of whom is shouting 
that the hero will come and sees a pair of bodies fall down next to Ellen's corpse, of which he just saw. He scrambles out of the cavern, dodges Kolos, wearing all of the world's knowledge and history on his arms, ready to record whatever knew was about to occur. He makes it to Vin's body, and she's dead, of course. This is also where we see Ruin's body, right? But we don't get a very long description of it. It's just a short man with red hair. I think that's it. Mm -hmm. And I I assume that makes sense to me because Sazed would just probably assume it's another person that's been fighting another soldier or something like that. And he's obviously too distracted with Vin at his feet to really notice. But he just easily dodges all these Coloss because he's got feels speed. hand waved. Right. Oh, he Doesn't does he... have speed. Yeah, he uses Farrakemi to get out there. Yep, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is interesting because he taps a bit of steel to dodge, he moved quickly. You know, he's wearing his metal mines. It is kind of it's just quick. It's so fast that it's like mm-hmm. you know, that's not the point of this. The point is is that he scrambled to make it out there. It is the mechanic of how he did so, but yeah. But he's broken. He rejects the notion that this could be the end. And man, it's it's tough in the way that he's breaking down. And it almost seems like he's about to be buried in that old Sazed when he notices a power, stability. And he sees another one, a deep black smoke. And he sees this as the power of change. And he begins to piece it all together as he recants. The hero would be rejected of his people, yet he would save them. Not a warrior, though he would fight. Not born a king, but he would become one anyway. He takes the powers and slams them together, and he evaporates. And Sazed, the hero of ages, becomes a god. So was there a description of the manifestation of preservation's power? I I would assume it was misty. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, mist. He was he was burning so brightly on this newfound faith, but the re- recollection of this prophecy was so so wonderful for me. What I did notice is the word he occurs several times as does the word king. So is this the true wording of the prophecy? No, I think it's still the general gender neutral pronouns as was kind of discussed previously okay. with the first, right? I think he's just recanting it as he remembers. I don't know. Okay. I don't think it matters. That's fair. It's in a language I, that it, he doesn't have. Brandon Sanderson is not trying to be Tolkien and like write the language specifically out in front of us, you know, right. but he could. He, he does explain the presentation. Yeah, he does explain that the conversion isn't truly. One to one earlier on, but I am curious about the word king and if that is a one to one. So the know. the term is even used before in the book as emperor. So it's clearly there's some conflicting notes there. Okay. I'm it's just trying to, to I'm trying to draw it back to there's the there's no gendering said. There's intentionally it's not meant to be a gendered solution. Right. I just I want there to be more to what the first had said and a reason why it was assumed to be male. As opposed to just sexism. Yeah, I don't know. Can't speak to it. Okay. I assume it was just, well, there is the potential that, 
I don't know. I would have to I would have to do a little bit more reading. Well, here's what I'll do. I will pin that and we'll come back to it in our Hero of Ages episode. All right. Deal. Moving on from there. Did you have any other notes? Any other thoughts on like grabbing the power, evaporating? No, it's just cool. <laughs> yeah, fair. So our godly boy Sazed begins to take that knowledge of his keeper training and uses it and all of the faiths of the world to repair the planet with their pieces of knowledge and distinct focuses, each lending something to its rebirth. The Bennett's charts restore the continents, the Nilizan and Trelogism to reposition the planet where it should have been, the Nelizan people and Trelogism, the religion, to reposition the planets to where it should be. The Kanzai's knowledge of biology gives him the ability to repair mankind to be able to ingest these plants again and no longer subsist in the ashen environment, but instead live in another one. The Dadra's colors that he preached to clubs shortly before his death flow over the world as this artisan sort of reshapes it in this moment. And with that memory, I think firmly lodged is really cool on the side of clubs as well as this character. I, I think that specific relation is really one of the deeper ones that I think gets skirted over because the next one, the final one, is the Larsta, Mare's religion, and the beauty of the world that returns to it as such, and the flowers and all of the the different things that created and caused inspiration. He is he is a very powerful reflection in this moment, as he says, the religions in my portfolio weren't useless after all. They weren't all true, but they all had truth. I fucking loved the use of his copper mines Mm -hmm. and and how that all so cleanly tied together i it just fucking perfect i really 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 love that Mm -hmm. yeah i really enjoyed it i think that Mm -hmm. it's great i think it's it's such a beautiful way to uh to end you know this book is the hero and to repair the world that was breaking and falling apart to say that that was the end of the world i think is still accurate because that world did end and now we have a new world that says it really shapes so there is one thing in here that i'm curious about and Mm -hmm. goes back to a question that we had last week as well as something from way before and that's mayor and mayor's religion had says met mayor i don't know because he talks about how the only religion that survived is the terrorist religion. And if she held that religion as it's described, that's not true. Unless, unless this was something that he preached to her and she learned about through him. So says it did no mare. That's confirmed. Okay. Ah, there is an answer. Mare was a follower of the Larastra faith, converting to it after Sazed had preached it to her. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yep. I like that. Yay. One would assume then that she maybe took those texts and maybe drew the flower herself based on the text. That could be. Which would also be pretty. Would make sense. Mm-hmm. And make it even more powerful. There's another note here that I find particularly powerful, that of the fact that Rashik and Vin had both only held small portions of the power. We know this because of the diminished nature in which Vin was able to wield preservation against Ruin and explain some things about the nature of the power therein, and maybe her full ability to hold and maintain the power for an extended period of time. She's only here, you know, this is a short period of time if we look at it from the planet and the battle and everything that's going on. But there's another note here that I, I really 
and I want to highlight, Rune and Preservation were dead, and their powers had been joined together. In fact, they belonged together. How had they been split? Someday, perhaps, he would discover the answer to that question. I do now truly appreciate the Lord Ruler's title of the Sliver of Infinity Mm -hmm. in regards to that small bit of godhood that he had claimed. Really, what I'm getting out of this is I, I hope to continue to interact with our god boy Sazed in the next era of this world, assuming that if he's talking about how she only had a small portion of it, but he has the full thing, hypothetically, his would be more lingering. His should be more lingering. He's got the full power, right? He's holding that power holistically. Our chapter ends with Sazed acknowledging that he is the hero of hero to span ages, that he is God. God boy. God boy. God boy Sazed. It's you know, Sazed's arc is fucking fantastic. It's it's tough it to not say otherwise. This this story, this book is so good in large part because of the way that Sazed really changes and really comes to the center as the intended main character. You know, one of the intended main characters from the very beginning, he starts as like, you know, a servant and the servant servant to God pipeline is underrepresented in media. I just I really I really love the depiction throughout. Mm-hmm. I agree. And yeah, it's definitely something that I really appreciate, especially as thinking about the religions and as he thought about them over time in a reread. It was definitely one of my personal highlights. So. All right, we get to our final logbook here. Of course, it's a fucking long one. It's the longest one in the fucking book. It's the last one. Vin was special. Preservation chose her from a very young age, as I have mentioned. I believe that he was grooming her to take his power. Yet the mind of Preservation was very weak at that point, reduced to only, only to the fragment that we knew as the Miss Spirit. What made him choose this girl? Was it because she was a mistborn? Was it because she had snapped so early in life, coming to her powers even as she went through the pains of an unusually difficult labor her mother went through to bear her? Vin was unusually talented and strong with Alamancy, even from the beginning. I believe that she must have been drawn she must have drawn some of the mist into her when she was a child, in those brief times when she wasn't wearing the earring. Preservation had mostly gotten her to stop wearing it by the time Kelsier had recruited her, though she put it back in for a moment before joining the crew. Then she'd left it there at his suggestion. Nobody else could draw upon the mists. I've determined to this. Why were they open to Vin and not others? I suspect that she couldn't have taken them all in until after she'd touched the power at the Well of Ascension. It was always meant, I believe, to be something of an attuning force, something that, once touched, would adjust a person's body to be able to accept the mists. Yet, she did make use of the small crumb of Preservation's power when she defeated the Lord Ruler, a year before she began hearing the thumping of the power's return to the well. There's much more to this mystery. Perhaps I will tease it out eventually as my mind grows more and more accustomed to its expanded nature. Perhaps I will determine why I was able to take the powers myself. For now, I only wish to make a simple acknowledgement of the woman who held the power just before me. Of all of us who touched it, I feel she was the most worthy. So snapped at birth, mm-hmm. during birth, that's a pretty cool explanation, I guess. Makes it less clear if, like, regarding hemolurgy and if that can affect people that have not been snapped yet. Um, 
Hmm. Do you think this is intended to say that she was she was supposed to be the hero of ages? That is a great question that I don't necessarily think is intended to be answered. I think it is it is it says that she was groomed to pick up the power. Part of me leans into this idea that she was groomed to pick up the power so that she would eventually annihilate. Like, that was a part of the plan the whole time. And that, to a large degree, she wasn't intended to be the hero, but she was intended to be preservation. Okay. If that makes sense. But the hero is the combination, right? The hero is both. So, yeah. I think this foretells more that she was always intended to be the inheritor of preservation. But in the end the inheritor of preservation had to, you know, had to do the worst and self-annihilate basically. Yeah. To prevent the destruction of everything. So in a very different world, I believe that she was being raised to be the one, so to speak. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking it's earring, great though. What's up? Fucking, Fucking earring. earring. Fucking earring, man. Crazy, crazy how important it is and how it's in every single fucking important scene and it's explicitly mentioned all the time. And man, does it not just feel like an absolute didoy when you hit that moment and smack your forehead? Oh, man. I mean, I feel like I picked up on it pretty early that it was something important. But it being important doesn't but mean that like you know why it's important. I, I just assumed ferricamy. Because mm-hmm. that was all we were exposed to as far as... Yeah magic systems go right well from a technical perspective we had seen hemology the whole time but yeah yeah fair through the inquisitors you know like but that's true we didn't we didn't understand the implications so Mm -hmm. our final section here is one of return you know in classic kind of epilogue fashion spook returns to consciousness surrounded by his friends and a new world as all of the caverns have been pushed together Ham with his children and wife, Demu returning and seeming to be in much better shape than he was previously without an arm and kind of in really rough shape. He walks out among a pattern and beautiful colors, colorful somethings are littering the ground everywhere. Of course, we know these are flowers, but, you know, Spook would only know them as colorful somethings. (laughs) And Vin and Ellen's bodies holding hand at the center of this pattern. Vin in her miscloak and Ellen in his imperial uniform. Hmm. What a what an end. What an ending. I loved it. I mm. love this ending. I'm going to bring it back to stars here. Because in this, Spook says colorful somethings to describe flowers that we know them as flowers, but why would he know them as anything other than colorful somethings? Ellen knows them as stars right off the bat. Yeah. That feels inconsistent. Yeah. I don't know. I just I don't know what to say other than that. It just felt... I'm 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 hung up on the stars thing, man. It's fair. Mm-hmm. Are you reading something or are you uh-huh. waiting for me to say more? Nope, I'm reading. Okay. All right. I'm going to have to do some like stricter, harder digging. There's unsurprisingly, there's a lot on stars because there's planets. So a lot of there's a lot of different impressions of stars. That said, it's not often talked about because they weren't supposed to be visible. I mean, okay. The counter argument is aware of stars because of says it the sun is technically a star i don't know i'm yeah. not in charge okay but i'll 
again for next week i will try to dig in and see if i can find something textual it's not it truly isn't that important and yeah i'm just latching on for no real good reason fuck you (laughs) 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 all right our final tidbit to talk about in era one from a textual standpoint here. Yeah, tidbit. Is tidbit. <laughs> it's kind of a big tidbit. Spook finds something. It's the tidbit that I've been reading every single fucking week. It's a leather journal, our logbook that we've been reading from this whole time. In it, we find that Spook has been made a mistborn and that this entire thing has been left intentionally for Spook. A big part of me here thinks that this is a wonderful parallel to the notes that Kelsier left in the end of the first book of which Spook was excluded and spook here being handed a massive place and position in the new world as the holder of this information it's a lot of faith that's kind of pressed on him there's a lot in this short note that is intended only for spook but i wanted to throw it to you here at the end what pieces of Sazed's final notes to spook did you find the most interesting for me the most interesting one is one that you kind of left out and that's that the gift of mistborn was given at kelsier's request Apparently. And that makes for some really intriguing thoughts on who slash what Kelsier is or was. And if this was an actual explicit like request and conversation between Kelsier and Sazed in this moment, or if it was an assumed one based on what Sazed knew about Kel. Like, I don't know what to make of it because it's like one. Uh, it's like three words. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to go off of that, but <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's the biggest thing that I was thinking about here, but absolutely spook is now made to be this very important character going forward in this world, despite us probably not experiencing that story. I don't know. I'm, I'm happy for him. Yeah. Happy for him all. You know, like it's it's tough not to say like everyone who survived, like it's great to see him with his kids and his wife. Like, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Demu, you know, being happy in the arms of a terrorist woman who is clearly helping him. And, you know, Spook proving that he deserved to be a hero and then being turned into a hero. Yeah. That he but idolized. So he's not turned into a hero. He became a hero and then he was rewarded with. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Given, given I, yes, agreed, agreed, agreed. Just being a misborn doesn't make you a hero. We know that because there are plenty of misborn villains that Mm -hmm. are generally not good people. Yes. True. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what an ending though. Yeah. It's, it's great, man. And it puts again, like every epilogue has, it kind of puts in the full context of the logbook that we've been reading and gives us, gives us that out. And that's it. That's it. That's, that's the it. series. That's that's an era, man. Technically, you era. have the eleventh medal to read. It's a prequel, but it's a it's a Kelsier prequel. But should I read that before the wrap up? You can you can read that one whenever you like. You cannot read Secret History, and you should not read Alamancer Jack. Okay. Until we start Era One, and then I don't care. Era Two. So. Yeah, yeah, I meant Era 2. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Cool. Well, should we talk then? about what's coming up now? That's it, yeah. So we've got two episodes that are going to be coming out over the course of the next two weeks. So the first one that's up is going to be our own personal wrap-up, like we've been talking about for the Hero of Ages, and likely some of our opinions about Era 1 on the whole. That's kind of the plan. 
And then we've got a couple of folks that are going to be coming up the week after that to wrap up Era 1 of Mistborn. A couple of folks from the Shardcast, specifically from Span Reads, which is the recent Mistborn reread podcast that they've been doing. Should be a lot of fun. Very excited. Excited Excited to meet them. Mm -hmm. That'll That'll be a fun time. Very pumped. Yeah. That said, we've got a lot of a lot of fun stuff coming out over the next couple of months. We announced again that we're going to be going, obviously, into Era 2 here very soon. But then after that, going into the Greenbone Saga. So if you like to be ahead of us, it's a reasonable time to start reading that. We'll be starting that in January. So if you take take your time and you want to know the whole thing and then experience a reread with us, do that. If you want to follow along like we know many are, do it that way, whichever way you prefer. Mm-hmm. You've got time. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always. Tim and Andrew. You guys are awesome. You keep our show going. Keep us alive. More or less. (laughs) Check out the links to the show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one nice little convenient location. You talked about job security earlier. You know who has job security? (laughs) (laughs) Tim and Andrew have job security. (laughs) (laughs) in their role with us here like pj had said you can check us out you can see all of those links inside of the show notes it takes you basically to our website our website has everything but if you do not click through here are where you can find us words whiskey pod on twitter instagram and reddit and facebook uh words and whiskey show at gmail.com as well as patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey we also have t-shirts on t public like we said follow the link you can check it out we also will be having our schedule posted for Mistborn Era 2. Unfortunately, we broke something in the website and didn't realize it, and it didn't get posted. I'll probably take a screenshot and share a rough one so you can have one, but I do have it. It's already done, fully planned out. I've already started my Alloy of Law notes, so I actually have a head start for once, and yeah, very excited to wrap up, wrap this up over two episodes, and then to move on to our lovely Mistborn. With that, one other note... a couple days from... August, which means we're going to have a little bit of a drunky episode where I resolve all the uh, we resolve all my predictions. There so. are a couple that I eat dirt on. I know that there are some <laughs> because I already have them flagged from a previous episode in which we decided that we were going to hold them all until the end. But we also. I wanted to say that in September, I believe September or October, we will also be doing. Warbreaker as a short pour. So if you are looking for something to read over the next two months do that sweet great cool awesome we will see you next week see you soon